We who are about to die salute you. Monday in America, you know what that means. It's uh, time for us to break down yet another episode, issue, sode, whatever you want to call it, of Strike Force Moratory. It is Moratory Monday with Chris and Chris. How you doing this week, Chris? I got a call recently this morning from Lady Gaga, and she was begging me to say, could you please join the One World concert? And we said, yes, we will provide mm-hmm. Moratory Mondays, episode 16, as part of this whole campaign. So this is what we're doing. We're an essential service, and we're here for you. Mm-hmm. Speaking of essential services, we left off our recruit update last time on a, a bit of a cliffhanger, a bit of oh, a uh, yes. nebulous cliffhanger. Uh, before we get into the nonsense, how about you uh, You set us straight on exactly where our recruits stand at the very moment? Well, certainly they are at ground zero where recruits Med, Dreamscape, Splinter Red, Force Field, and Lockshot find themselves united inside a cleverly concealed Moratory Garden training center. Now, they've, they've gone back there, so with a little bit of help from new inter, interdimensional recruit, Splinter Red, he altered reality to actually trap the Horde army and that false Red Watch uh, in what they thought was Moratory Labs, which they assumed contains the power source that caused the Moratory powers, which they thought was the Star Brand. And, of course... An interesting caveat as well, it also contained their deceased leader, Thunderfist, who they had all intentions of reviving, and which they mm-hmm. did, with the help of one of our own recruits at, at basically gunpoint. But anyway, <laughs> now, our team basically has them trapped right now, so they're all locked inside the garden, nice and neat. Now, as our team looks on, they're fully uh, they're fully aware that they are together in this, despite not even being formally introduced. I mean, half of these people didn't even know they existed. At the time this whole outbreak happened, they were in different parts of the building. They didn't get to meet each other. But right now, they they basically understand that, hey, we're together <laughs> against this monstrous horde. So <laughs> right now, the horde has their backs against the wall. And Splinter Red right now is actually using his powers for the first time. And he's projecting things. He's actually altering or splintering reality to project things that aren't there, which confuses our enemies. And he actually, while they're confused, he levels the front line with his massive concussion cannon. So he's blowing away people left and right where they're dealing with inanimate objects they don't even understand. Lockshot himself engages with foe evil Harold, launching eye blasts at him. Now, Harold, of course, foe, foe Harold, uh, fake Hordian Harold, is actually redirecting them. But he takes one in the shoulder and he's actually injured And as his army is just dropping like flies all around him. Now, Dreamscape, he uses some of his extra powers. He creates inanimate dreamlike distractions all around, redirecting the horde to shoot at these objects they don't even know. They don't even really exist. Now, our odds improve even further for our heroes as the garden, which is now the embodiment of our former commander, Beth Neon, her essence basically lives inside the garden, and it's creating all kinds of vine-like barriers, entangles waves of the horde troopers into hallways with vines and obstacles, and, you know, basically blocking them in and crushing them as, you know, as their screams roar out throughout the uh, throughout the entire complex, the Hordian troopers begin to run away. But 
It's basically the entire area is completely concealed and they're at the garden's mercy. So the security systems are eliminating any way to escape and just blasting them off left and right. Now, Harold, he repels the vines. This is the faux Harold. He's able to repel the vines and moves in on Dreamscape. He tosses them up against the wall, uh, actually using a deflective blast from Lockshot. So he's using their own powers against them. He engages Lockshot. Now, both of these guys, Lockhorns, are basically locking up like in wrestling. Physical combat. Forcefield, on the other hand, decides to protect Dreamscape, who just took a tumble against the wall, and Med while all this is happening. Now, Splinter Red has opened up, with his cannon, a direct line to the revived Hordian commander. He's got him right in his crosshairs as this savage alien commander who's basically stepping forward to come after Splinter Red, stepping on the dead bodies of his own people. And, I mean, there's blood all over the garden, dead bodies all over the place. The putrid stench of Hordian blood is all around them. The video screen, which monitor Earth, show actually show the Hordian mothership actually starting to pull away from the Earth atmosphere. So certain victory is at hand here. Now, the Hordian commander actually stops atop of one of the Hordian dead, and he holds a detonator. Of course, the famous detonator with two buttons, <laughs> which <laughs> that uh, brings the room to a standstill. Everybody sees what his game is. Thunderfist actually proclaims that he's about to commit genocide with a single push of the button. And if he presses the button, the mothership that has left orbit, they didn't start running. They're actually preparing to launch a final nuclear strike against the Earth. With the recruits lowering their weapons, they know this is the moment where everything can end. Then the Hordian commander clicks the trigger. Next up, finale, The Last Minutes of Earth. The actual last installment will occur next episode. Oh boy, I mean, this... uh. This reminds me of the season finale of uh, the third season of Melrose Place, if you remember that. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Where? I actually do. <laughs> Where? Where the entire place goes up in smoke. <laughs> I love that that whole story with uh, Kimberly Shaw, who's played by uh, What's-Her-Face. Uh, oh, man, uh, Marsha Marcia something or other. Uh, she played Brie on Desperate Housewives as well. Oh, yeah. Um, and she's like totally lost her mind and she rigged the entire Melrose place apartment building to blow. And, uh, they almost stop her from doing it. And like, she comes out of the laundry room where she was hiding out and she's like, it's like, no, no, you guys all, you, you misunderstand it. it. It's not what you think. It's not what you think. And then she clicks the button. She goes, it's actually worse. <laughs> and the whole place explodes. That was unbelievable. Actually. Like, I don't think, I don't think anybody saw that coming. So that was quite a shocker for oh, the, absolutely. for Melrose place, especially you think like it's, it's like a Beverly Hills 90210. Yeah. yeah. It's a drama. You don't expect sheer anarchy like that, but Anyway, it was cool. It was very, very cool. Just like this is very, very cool. So I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what happens to Earth. Uh, it, I, it's like you get the pre- the impression that maybe the editors aren't looking at the at your story very, uh, very thoroughly <laughs> here, where <laughs> we can enough. destroy planets and no one even notices. It reminds me of a certain run of the Legion of Superheroes. <laughs> uh, oh my God, the multiple <laughs> tombs of runs of the Legion of Superheroes. <laughs> It's true. I, I have de- I have decided as someone who like I used to love continuity, man. Like it meant a lot to me, even after <laughs> sure. Crisis when they did a little bit of a relaunch. You know what I mean? I was okay with all of that, you know, because basically they were settling in, they were taking parts of continuity, but at least they took the time to explain stuff away. They didn't throw it on you. Yeah. And but I mean, just everything that goes on right now. Like I don't even know what the Legion of Superheroes is right now. I don't know if you've read any of those issues, but man, they are so far away from the beaten path. It's it's not it's not my Legion. I'll tell you that. 
I was going to say, I, I have a few of them. I haven't even opened them. Uh, since it's a Bendis book, I'm assuming that they it opens up with 57 legionnaires sitting around a table eating uh, intergalactic Chinese food. You got um, it. That's exactly It's like a little, you know, friend, friend, buddy, buddy type thing who are living and living off their past idols. And it's, oh, man, it's <laughs> sorry. I wish I had better <laughs> news for Legion fans, but that thing is that thing is a trudge it's to a get dull. through. Yep. <laughs> and, and you know, with all the promises of how the Legion might come back and uh, how the Justice Society might come back. But, uh, you know, Jeff Johns kind of you know screwed the dog on that and, and decided that comics weren't his priority anymore. So left it to other people to relaunch these properties. And uh, it, it feels like one of those things where it's, you know, be careful what you ask for, because uh, I think so many people wanted the Legion and the JSA back and. Now we've got them back, and it's like, well, this isn't what we wanted. What is no, this? No, no. Listen, the entire part of nostalgia and rebranding these things, people want what they had back, okay? Yes. They want the cla- – most times they want the classic version or the altered most popular version of the character back with the full continuity or at least a sense of continuity. Sure. They We didn't get that at all with this. These yeah. are brand-new characters. You know, sure, they're based – technically on the old legion but that's yeah, not what the we same want. names yeah i want lightning lad i want cosmic boy saturn girl like or at, or at least older versions of them and then introduce some new people but don't have them as oh, i don't know so I'm, I'm too mad to talk i'm too upset <laughs> i'm too mad with the current situation and now legion i don't know it's the world has gone crazy it has and it reminds me of uh Something that they did when they brought the uh, Titans back under uh, Devin Grayson back in uh, 1997, 1998. Like the first maybe six or seven issues was kind of like a greatest hits. You know, it's like, you know, the band is out of retirement. They're playing all their greatest hits. And it's like, oh, that's cool. You know, we're getting uh, reunited with these characters. But then you realize that that she really had nothing more to say. And uh, and then like Titans, we get canceled and relaunched again with the same like six issues of Hey, remember the past? Remember how great it was? And then it's like, <laughs> there's still nothing else new to say. And uh, it, it, just the law of diminishing returns on that sort of thing. I, I just wish there were uh, writers capable and uh, and willing enough to actually stick the landing on something like that. But uh, that just doesn't happen anymore, does it? It's a real shame. And and I guess, I don't know. Well, obviously, they're clearly not catering to us, which no. basically are still the people <laughs> who are buying comics, by the way. The only people. <laughs> yeah. So they've, they've tried to cater to a younger audience, which are not, for the most part, purchasing the new books sure. or stealing them or finding new convenient ways to find them. Yes. But uh, listen, I mean, it just doesn't make sense. I, I just don't know. I think someone would really, really win a fan base over if they just when they reset a deck, they brought it back to its roots, man, like actual legit roots. Mm-hmm. But I yeah. guess we'll never see that in 2020, man. We're too far yeah. off the beaten track right oh, now to ever return. Yeah, that's, that's a pipe dream. Our, our buddy, uh, Dave uh, Schultz, he, he always uh, has this idea where, you know, keep doing the crap you're doing now with the, with the comics. You know, if you want to do no continuity, do it, whatever the hell you want, but then do like the second line that's on newsprint, you know, cheap. Newsprint. Absolutely. That just it, it it is in continuity. It has all the old baggage. If if the new kids who don't like the the crappy paper don't want to buy it, then screw them. <laughs> they don't have to. But all of us people who uh, who who love the you know the the pre crisis, the post crisis, the pre flashpoint, the uh, the pre secret wars, uh, the second, third, whatever the hell secret was, 2015. For all of us who like that stuff. Let us have it. <laughs> you know? Well, you think about it. Look how easy it is to physically do that. Think about those dollar mm-hmm. editions that come out today. Oh, yeah. 
Guess what? Absolutely. Those are those are not bad. I don't open those and go, oh, look at this crappy paper. Look at this crappy color. I don't. Mm-hmm. They look great. They they got a, you know, they're not deluxe format. They don't have this bonded they steel. They don't have to be. Re- no, they yeah. don't have to be, Chris. Good God. Yeah. Just put out a put out a gosh darn comic and be done with it. God's <laughs> sake. And some of those are like the only things worth buying these days anymore. <laughs> I know. So I feel difference. like I feel like giving Jim Shooter a machine gun and tell him to go seize Marvel. <laughs> Let's go take it, but liberate that, liberate that company. <laughs> Let's go find that team of horses that drug him out of the building in the first place and <laughs> let him stampede back in. First thing, uh, first thing he does, he steps into his office and he sits down. He goes, "Okay, we're gonna start over again with Star Brand number six. Yes, <laughs> Star Brand forever." <laughs> I love it. Anyway, I think we I think we got a, an actual comic book to talk about. Here. We do. We actually do. Uh, an issue of Strike Force Moratorium, in fact, uh, the 16th issue, in fact, uh, with a, a cover date of March 1988. Our story is called Grudge Match, written by Peter B. Gillis with pencils by Will Spritasio. <laughs> it's true. Uh, inks by Scott Williams, lead is Phil Felix, colors Max Scheel, edits Carl Potts, who we're going to learn a whole lot much uh, more about later on this episode. Uh, yes, the Mr. Cheese, Potts, be ready. <laughs> yes, Mr. Potts is going to be on blast of some sort. Uh, the Cheese is Tom DeFalco, cover price $1 US, $1.25 can, and 40p uck. Can, uh, as in, we can charge those people an extra 25 cents. That's what yeah. they're basically saying there. Yeah, we can. <laughs> Meanwhile, the the 40p people are going, uck. (laughs) You know, going to like arcades uh, back in the 90s and stuff, and uh, you'd go to like the uh, the change machine where you'd put a dollar in and you'd get quarters. Yep. Every once in a while, or actually pretty often uh, growing up in New York, uh, you'd get Canadian coins back. And (laughs) nobody, they they had no value. Nobody (laughs) wanted them. The the uh, only way you'd get a, get rid of them is if you like tried to sneak them into like a roll of quarters, you know, like like one of those wrapped paper roll of quarters. That's the only way you could get rid of them because if you gave them to someone at a store, they're like, I don't want this. Like, oh, our no. poor currency, our poor diminished currency. What a shame. <laughs> it is. Now uh, this issue uh, hit the stands on November third, nineteen eighty seven. That comes to us from Mike'sAmazingWorld.com. Um, now our cover. Stanks. It's another stinker. Um, on it, a hordesman punches another hordesman. I literally had to look to see if this ever even really happened inside the book itself. I I, I didn't recall it. So when, when you talked about the cover and how bad it was, I said, man, I got to go back and take a look at this. And I was like, I don't recall this being in a comic. And I actually had to thumb <laughs> through. And sure enough, it actually happened sort of somewhat sort of, in, yeah. in a couple panels. Yeah. But yeah, this is a this is a really rough cover. Like there's picture this. There's like. Of course, you got two people fighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's like a ton of unused space. It's weird. Yep. They have this weird font that flows down on the spine that says divided. Now, it looks like someone ended up getting like word or paint for the first time and like went on a font party. Like, we went on, they were like, <laughs> how does this look in New Times Roman? No, wait. Why don't we try Ariel Black? Wait, no. This calls for Rockwell Extra Bold. <laughs> wingdings. Yes, wingdings. Yes. <laughs> But instead, we end up with wide Latin in italics, in italics or whatever, because, well, you know, we can impress the reader with these brave new fonts. I don't know. We, yes. I guess it was the time. You know what I mean? And the lack of the background. I mean, this just stinks of someone getting a new Macintosh computer for the first time. It's just like it's like 
my God, we don't have to draw a back room. We can just do gradient blue. And they'll gradient never know. Look, it's terrible. <laughs> you can see that the only thing that was literally drawn on this cover were the two hordesmen. You know what I mean? For sure. For sure. Every, everything else, everything else, they're like trying to show off their crazy new things that they can do digitally. Well, it sorry, it falls on his face here, man. Man, and, and if people are following along with us episode by episode here, we usually make like a like a fake cover for every episode here. And in order to manipulate this cover into something that we could use for, like, album art, we had to flip the word divided on its side. Because, it, like you said here, it goes down, like, the left-hand portion, the left-hand side of the cover. It says divided, you know, from top to bottom. So we had to flip it, put it under the two Hordians fighting, because it's the only thing that would work. And uh, <laughs> now, with it on its side in that weird, you know, wide Latin italics, um, it looks like something that like the little guy from Twin Peaks would say. It looks like it says, you know, the horde. <laughs> Idiolaya. It actually does. It's hilarious. <laughs> it does. So uh, yeah, that's a uh, not a good cover, and uh, just another in a run of pretty lackluster covers for this comic book, unfortunately. Um, now we do have a solicitation for this issue, and it says. Uh, where would you expect to find a showdown between Muraturi and their alien foes of the Horde? Would you believe an Old West ghost town? Now, I was trying to figure out the motivation for this, but for this whole Wild West theme. But, you know, I think the creative team are not very subtle about their influences when it comes yeah. to making this comic. So I think somebody in the office that particular week actually signed a Clint Eastwood marathon or something. Because <laughs> there's definitely some several nods to the man with no name in this one. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, there's and, and we get to see a little few uh, a few sneak peeks at some of the things they throw in the background of some of their inspirations. And they're, sure. they're pretty uh they're pretty open about it, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on as we go through. Absolutely. Now, the issue itself opens – now, stop us if you heard this one before. Uh, it's, it opens with a, a scene of the Morituri using their powers in tandem. What a great idea. Now we can finally wow. understand what each person does. It's true. It's true. Uh, now, this time, uh, they're facing the dire threat of – Oh, don't, oh bear, break, brace everybody. Uh, we go hope ahead, you're all me. sitting down. Uh, for this, uh, they are facing the threat of preparing breakfast. <laughs> now, Pilar, she has super speed, right? So she's beating eggs with her super speed. Um, and she's beating them too fast, so she's told to slow down. Ruthie, uh, she uses her powers to de- detoxify onions. Um I, I didn't know that onions were toxic, but uh, she is eating the onions to, like, make some sort of a, a tear repellent. I don't know. It's very, very bad. Well, um, well think about think about this. At least they included Ruth and Pilar this, this time. time. They, yeah. yeah. So even though they're beating eggs and detoxifying onions, but mm-hmm. I digress. <laughs> Our main man, Sheer, uh, instead of, you know, slicing hearts, he's actually slicing a loaf of bread. Um, Brava <laughs> discovers that all the donuts were eaten the night before and dumps Scaredy Cat on her head for eating all those donuts. Uh, hard case, the prankster that he is, he hardens all the sliced bread. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, the it's Tom Fullery. Red cat. Uh, <laughs> backhand, he uh, deflects power for some reason and it, it, he winds up shattering a light bulb which i'm assuming is like one last parting shot at our dearly departed radium you know it's like take oh, that I, light bulb i uh. didn't see that you're exactly right mm, and, wow uh, 
You know, we, we usually give Gillis credit for these very contrived scenes. Like we said, it was like a writer's workshop for him where he has to find this really, really clever way to make their powers work together in an organic fashion. This just proves he can't win them all. Oh, man, you're not kidding. This is hot garbage. <laughs> I mean, I'm telling you, think about it. I mean, every single they all they show off their individual powers every single issue. Yeah. But this whole playful food fight is something like almost from a save by the bell, you know, yeah. uh, like cue the laugh track here, people. This would have worked, I think, if they were humanizing the moratorium public, say if they were doing like a humorous media clip or something like that. But nope, this was for real. This is what they do in their spare time. This was the real life here. And, uh, you know, we mentioned Louie a minute ago, but we got to we got to stress it here. Nobody seems all that torn up about how Sheer just murdered Louie. <laughs> Man, like he murdered team, him. This team gets over things like super fast. I mean, <laughs> I think what's really happening here, I think we're finally seeing like the fragmentation of the creative teams, obviously, because mm. continuity is going out the window. I think my guess are like these books are like piecemealed like we always get to see you know let's say they send portacio in to do a script while anderson works on the next issue and then they call bagley and tell him oh by the way you're doing issue 27 can you bang that one out and nobody ever decides to fill in the blanks or let anyone know what the other person did in the other issue so i think we're getting a lot of that happening here where the creative teams are not being communicated to and we're getting like stuff that seems completely out of sequence because if your friend died you know you don't want to make a hysterical breakfast the next morning so you know i consider this the great <laughs> breakfast moratory debacle of 88 i guarantee you it's horrendous <laughs> terrible no before this all escalates into a full-blown you know say by the bell style food fight here uh, they are all stopped in their tracks by a psychic projection from the douche uh, william Deguchi. Now, he's called them into the dorms because he has to show them something rather troubling. You see, Aileen went AWOL. She's gone. She melted her way out of the the headquarters and vanished into the night. Seriously, can you blame her? I mean, honestly, honestly, screw these people. They're not her friends. She's obviously an outsider here. You got generations two and three that seem to have some sort of bond that like generation one and two didn't. I don't know. They seem to be gelling a lot better out of nowhere. Like there was, there wasn't even a real transition period. It just sort of happened. And especially at the cost of the death of one of their friends or supposed colleagues, Mm -hmm. you know, especially one of them's literally a cold blooded murderer. Yet he's here just, you know, high jinxily cutting a loaf of bread with his powers. I mean, come on people. Let's, (laughs) let's, let's get better than this. For sure, for sure. Now, Pilar, she worries about both Aileen and her baby, but Deguchi stops her before she actually says baby. So maybe he thinks the walls have ears and he doesn't want people to, you know, the the higher-ups in the Padilla ranks to know that uh, Aileen is with child. Big Brother and Julie Chen is always watching. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) Now, we shift to uh, Commander Yuri's office, and he's watching a video transmission of Dr. Tulima. Now, on the screen, the doc is talking about the risks that go with trying to improve the moratory formula. And he even goes as far as to warn that, you know, this one-year death sentence, that might be the least of the subject's worries if they tinker with the formula. Mm. And uh, Yuri takes this all in, and in a weird and, you know, humanizing bit, he almost seems to be a little conflicted. Um, when he does show a little bit of hesitation, his commanders like kind of give him like the uh, the reality checks. Like, well, are you still with us or what? And he tells him, yeah, I'm going to do whatever you tell me. 
You know, I'm not going to argue. I am, you know, what what does he say? He's like, he's like, as a Russian, I will come, I will just follow orders blindly or something (laughs) like that. And, uh, which is a sign of the times, but, uh, he, uh, he's, he ensures them that he will not question their commands and he will do whatever they tell him to do. Yeah. Like he's definitely no Beth neon. I'll tell you that Yuri is, Yuri is his own man. He, you know, he doesn't have the emotional investment in the kids either, like like Beth Neon did, because Beth seemed to really, really care about this entire team and took like a personal investment. He is just literally cashing a check on Thursday, you know what yeah. I mean? He's mm-hmm. a company guy. He's not gonna buck the system. He's not gonna do anything over and above. He's like he's like like John Laurinaitis to Beth Neon's Vince Russo. That's how I would kind of <laughs> compare them. So you know. Glad they came back to the upper brasses movement on like the moratory developments because that yeah. seemed to be like a little bit of a gaping plot hole for the idea, you know, making an army. Remember, they were plotting to make an army of adepts. Yes. You know what I mean? Analyzers. But they seem to have forgotten that entire plot point. You know, it's a, it's a huge one that even spawned like Louis's whole betrayal and mm-hmm. caused like a wake of death along the way. So just to drop it out of nowhere seemed suspect but seems like they're getting back on track but they're sort of easing off the whole army of adepts thing it seems like they're just building a new army of moratory but not being specific about what they're doing yes for sure now from here we head into space and we check in with the horde uh we see the big bad thunder crush he is uh presented with a bunch of earth loot in the uh the form of uh clint eastwood movies porno mags and ham you know <laughs> three good tastes that go good together right <laughs> so it's been, it's funny how timely it is with the whole ham thing they actually note that it's the actual smithfield company yes. who's you know the company who basically has the world's biggest pork production you know in the, in the entire world that's mm-hmm. all over the news in current times but you know it yes. just hit me sort of weird i won't get into that right now but it's also the tip of the hat and the giveaway uh, that you know, someone in Marvel's creative is like a, a Western or a Clint Eastwood fan. Yes. And now, as as for <laughs> as for Playboy being porn, I think they're VHS tapes because they seem to be volumes. Yes. And he's got them like, like volume volume okay. twenty on upwards, right? So I guess he's trying to give you know Mister Thunderfist or Thunderdick or whatever to call them. <laughs> you know, tr- trying to keep them occupied for a while with these dirty VHS tapes, but man. <laughs> Just wait till they discover real porn. You're never going to see the horde again. All those tentacles be popping out of their bellies, hard as a rock, I tell you. You know, they'll be like, hey, what's this glass copy table for? People stuck to the wall the whole nine. They're going to go all rock and roll express on them. That's what I'll tell you. Ricky and Robert had a passion for glass copy tables. You may want to look that up. Oh, or don't. Yeah, or don't. Just just picture whatever's going on with Robert Gibson standing in the corner with no pants on with his crooked eye. That's all I'll tell you. <laughs> well, Ricky Morton takes care of business that day and sells out the place. And uh, and don't use Hexo Jim Duggan's blender to make your protein shake. <laughs> oh, no. Um, <clears throat> uh, it made now, me compromise. <laughs> Thundercrush here. He calls for the gentle inquirer to be put before him. Now, you see, old TC here is uh, really ticked off about how things went down last issue, and uh, he's fully prepared to take it out of the Inquirer's hide. Now, G.I. arrives and has read the Riot Act. Old Thundercrush, has, he, he claims that he had his opportunity for vengeance against the Moratory robbed from him in exchange for sharing, you know, fake propaganda with the overall worthless Louie. Boy, there you're not kidding. They went out a way to like sort of sidestep this whole Louis storyline. It it's seems true. like they want to get on with this. It seems like it's inconvenient to have to write about it, so they just want to quickly move on for some reason. It's really strange. 
It is. It's very out of sight, out of mind here. You know, don't you know, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain sort of stuff. I <laughs> don't know why it's being pushed aside so quickly. Maybe it'll become more clear to us as we continue. But uh, I, th- I think it's the fragmentation of the creative teams. It's, I got, think that, it's almost got to be. I think that they really didn't know what one person was doing. So they sort of had to lightly sidestep it without directly addressing the details of it. I think that's what's happening here. hundred percent, hundred percent, especially since, I mean, this issue, we, we saw that issue 16 here was a, uh, was mistakenly a part of a blurb like two or three episodes ago uh, in the uh, in the Marvel uh, the Mighty Marvel checklist here. So this was probably in the can long before 15 was even done. So I'm I'm guessing Wills and uh, even Gillis at the time maybe weren't sure exactly what was going on. Um, now the Inquirer here he promises he's going to make everything right. He's like, hey, don't worry about it. I got this. Next stop. A seemingly ordinary plastic pipework factory in Arizona. Hmm, Arizona, you say? It's hmm. true. It's, I can see them from my house. Um, <laughs> now, the folks inside, at first blush, seem to be at least Padilla adjacent. You see, they do know about the Muratori, and they do know about Dr. Tulima, but we don't know exactly what their connection is just yet, though we will by the end of the issue. Now, suddenly, their radar picks up on a horde, on the horde approaching, and they absolutely lose their minds freaking out. They're they're dropping bay doors, they're slamming windows, they're going <laughs> nuts here, trying to uh, evade, you know, deduct, deduction by the horde. Um, now, cooler heads eventually prevail, and they go back to business as usual, because it's like, hey, you know, maybe if we don't react, maybe the horde will just pass us by. Um, but... It's too late. Uh, even though these geeks didn't go out of their way to make it obvious what they actually do here, the Horde was able to sense a rather large electromagnetic reading emanating from this tiny and nondescript factory. Yeah, the veil is off these guys. It's pretty clear that they're running like a secret moratory-making plant, you know. Mm-hmm. It's the it's basically the Amazon Fulfillment Center for moratory. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I just hope these guys actually have the proper PPE for their colleagues, but we'll move on from that. <laughs> anyway, makes me wonder how many of these secret institutions that actually exist all over the world. Do you think about it? Mm-hmm. I mean, sure. there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes that we never even know about. We got secret movie sets that pop up. We got fake chemical weapons plants that are hidden away we never know existed. You know, on top of everything else, the rotten underbelly with, you know, human trafficking, drugs and commodities. I mean, you know, funny is funny, but I mean, they're everywhere. And of course, you know, this is wartime. So you got to keep this this sort of stuff like top secret. So but by the looks of it, the enemy is on their game and they're on to this little uh, cunning ruse that the uh, the moratory uh, officials have have planned here. So this little hidden factory has been exposed and the more than the horde are up on their game on this one. Absolutely. Now, three days pass, and then we rejoin Commander Yuri, who's being briefed by the Padilla. He's given orders and uh, inquires as to why he can't share the full scope of this latest mission with the team. You know, they're they're saying, that, you know, you got to get to this factory, but don't tell the recruits, you know, why. Um, now, he's told that he can't do this because the second Jenners, which is, you know, Pilar, Ruth and Taguchi, they still maintain contact with Dr. Tulima. So they still check in with him from now every now and again. And it's best for everyone to keep the moratory in the dark over this. Uh, Yuri, again, kind of gives pause. He seems a little conflicted, but, you know, being the uh, company man that he is, he does not argue. He heads into the next room and informs the team that they've got a mission to go on, and uh, they're actually rather excited for it. 
Now think about last issue. Again, we got like another tonal shift completely yeah. here because last week the team were like downtrodden and completely disengaged. And, you know, I even commented that, you know, just the joy of being a moratory, you know, hero was seemed to be snuffed out. But this book starts that. out of yeah. the gate almost like a TGIF sitcom where, you know, <laughs> the gang find out their, you know, of what hijinks they're going to get into at the mall or the secrets found in the school newspaper. You know what I mean? It's just this what weird. What happens when Will DeGucci doesn't follow up on the chain letter he got? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Either way, as a reader, I'm glad they're excited again. Don't get me wrong. I don't like the whole disengaged team. It's always good to see that they're excited to get out in combat because you can really mm. feel that. You know what I mean? But sure. boy, Louie's death is just like scraped into the garbage with leftovers from dinner here. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, usually you think about every death that they had in this series. So usually after every death story, the next issue is traditionally you see the team mourning where they're coming to grips with the loss of their friend, right? Not this time. Nope. It's breakfast time at the waffle house with the Keaton family. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Now, do you think, I mean, we, it's like, I, I'd love to check in with some of the creative team here and see if this was written like the Marvel way, you know? Where all, like, all Will Spitacio got was, like, a brief outline. He did all the pencils and then sent it back to Gillis to script here. Because, I mean, it, this is a very, very different book tonally, this issue. Um, the darkness isn't there where it really should be. Um, with I mean, we've had Louie with us for a year and a half at this point, just about. And it's and now he's gone and nobody seems to care in the slightest. So Not at all. I, just, I wonder if this was done the Marvel way or if this was done from full script um, from all appearances here. It looks like it definitely looks like the Marvel method at play here. But uh, <laughs> I think I think that the creative teams were alerted. They just said, hey, check the blurb in the Mighty Marvel checklist. That's <laughs> that's your story. Go <laughs> do it. Do it. <laughs> all I know is the number. OK. <laughs> Now, uh, we learn here that the plastics factory in Arizona has had a horde craft hovering over it for over 48 hours at this point. And anybody who dared approach or exit the location was incinerated from on high. Also, it looks like the horde has set up a whole lot of cameras all over the place, hoping to A, lure the moratory, and B, kill them on film. Hmm. So uh, rubbing some salt in the wounds here and uh, maybe putting a little bit more of the fright into the uh, common Earthian here, you know. Um, hard case, uh, you know, who we don't know a whole lot about at this point. Uh, we, we find out he's he was a West Point cadet here and uh, he gives a little bit of a scowl upon getting this. And he's like, I'm not really sure about this mission. And Yuri is he inquires as to why he's like, what's 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 the problem with it? Hard case says that, uh, hey, you know. First of all, this isn't a game. Second of all, the last time we ran in with the Super Hordians, it didn't end so well for us. Exactly. These guys are on the front lines, like, battling the Hordians, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You got Yuri, who's basically, you know, he's isolating at home. He's painting pictures on windows and doing celebrity <laughs> concerts. You know, he's doing all this stuff while all these kids are out there getting murdered, basically. Yep by the horde but he's like hey you know what's the problem here just go out and fight the super hordes come on sure, sure. they got they, they got all the tentacles it's great um <laughs> now a uh, hard case pulsing pulsating purple oh. tentacles oh. throbbing oh. <laughs> uh now hard case demands to know what's so important about this plastics factory but yuri is um he's mum he's like nope i'm not telling you can't do it sheer gets all ticked up ticked off and starts clapping back 
Yuri still seems a little bit conflicted, but he just gives them the uh, the old, you know, orders is orders, you know, treatment. Don't don't question your superiors. You do what you're told. That's part of your deal. You know, um, it's not yours to wonder why. It's just yours to do and die. Um, collect collect your paycheck. People get the work. That's it. Uh, our man Deguchi, of all people, is the one who finally steps up and says, "Screw it, we're going on this mission. We're gonna we're gonna grind their bones to dust. You know, we're gonna do this." And uh, we're soon going to find out why he's so gung-ho. Mm. Well, well, actually, we'll find out why right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you remember how Deguchi's powers of projection were acting a little weird last issue here? He was yeah. able to sense things as well as transmit things here. So that projection power isn't the only card he's got up his sleeve here. He can phys- he can also psychically sense things, it's like he did with uh, Sheer holding on to the, uh, the runaway train last issue. Um, he's hoping to be able to use his sensational sensing powers in order to suss out what's going on at this plastics plant. He's hoping to be able to pick up maybe some some rogue thoughts, you know, to figure out yes, if they exactly. can put the puzzle pieces together. I actually love this. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if you've been listening to the show, I've been skewering Deguchi, you know, every <laughs> every single week, you know, but. Yes, how his powers are developing is a real surprise for me. So, you know, sure. with this new augmentation to his power set, you know, it's very cool to learn that he's actually very useful to the team, you know, where his mm-hmm. powers seem to be a detriment, you know, was wildly out of control. He couldn't control it. It was random, you know, it was almost dangerous to have him around. But I yeah. think that the Pidea are realizing that this guy is a probably trouble to be keeping around. I wonder if they're aware of this, you know, new power mutation that he has. And, you know, will this happen to others? Like, think about it. If he, if his powers are starting to trans, you know, starting to morph and change and all that stuff over time, and he's able to augment his powers or do different things, you know, are the people who are creating these moratories, are they prepared or even have the understanding that when these characters or these heroes go out in battle, that their powers could mutate and they could become more powerful, they can, you know, extend their abilities and all this stuff. They don't really know the full strength of their abilities. So this is pretty interesting, but seems it like Deguchi has slipped into a real real powerful power that's going to be of use very soon it's true it's true it reminds me of uh when grant morrison took over the x-men and started introducing the concept of the secondary mutation and yes uh, exactly it, it it was so cool to to be able to see that sort of thing happen they, they blamed that on like a boom in the mutant population which i, I don't know how that makes sense but we'll let it because it's comics <laughs> but uh I, I do like the idea here and you wonder uh, not only about the characters we have with us still, but like, I mean, what if what if Jaylene didn't die and her powers mutated into something? And and we look at like someone like Silencer, whose powers suck. What yeah, happens that, if her that, powers? That augment? has to go somewhere else. You can't keep someone with dampening powers. Oh, you know, my. something else has to happen with that woman. Or I just, you know, I'm just waiting for the shoe to drop with her. It's true. It's true. Now we rejoin the team and they're in their jet heading toward Arizona here and. Uh, Scaredy Cat, you know, uh, Pilar, she decides to test Will Deguchi's uh, sensing skill by looking at him, making some weird eyes toward him, and thinking of something very, very, very dirty. Oh, God. I can only thank <laughs> the Lord that my mind is not on display for the general public, because some shit goes through this guy's head, is all I'll tell you. But anyway, I think the douche has a thing for Scaredy Cat, and I think it's kind of oh. cool. You know, let's think about it, with the exception of Aileen... No one really screws in this book, let's be it's honest. <laughs> is that weird? Like, you think about it, are, like, are the men given, like, saltpeter to control themselves around the ladies? 
<laughs> I don't know. Outside of like the, you know, the relationship between Robert and Jaylene, which was like, oh gosh, type of relationship. You know, they almost had like a brother sister relationship. It was like a complete, but the book is like completely devoid of sex. You know, it's not like a, not like a wild eighties, like ass slap or a grope. There's nothing here. Like there's absolutely nothing. It's on display. Like these people like live with each other. They don't think, you know, they don't have any evil thoughts. So I was surprised to see the douche actually hit mentally on the ladies. You know what I mean? It was, it was kind of cool. Uh, you know, I always felt like he was, he was, uh, may have been like a flag raver at the front of a pride parade, but I guess I'm wrong here. <laughs> Who knows? He really likes the ladies, which is, uh, which is interesting, mm-hmm. but what an awkward power. Imagine having like full control of your powers and remember he broadcast his powers randomly at first, yep. but he seems like, so if he was getting like, say for example, he was getting sprung, would that not be on <laughs> broadcast? Would not the entire team all of a sudden have those feelings? You know what I'm saying, baby? <laughs> I am feeling a little naughty. <laughs> anyway, I just gotta so sit have, down. Yes. So they actually have this. They have this sort of sort of power set, like translated to a show that's on TV right now. It's called. Uh, and don't judge me for watching this. I've seen like six episodes so far. It's called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Oh. Now the whole idea. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. Don't ask, don't ask why I watch it. But she can understand, she gets to feel or understand everyone's genuine emotions, but it's through a song and a playlist on her mind, and it makes for some really bizarre, uncomfortable situations. So just take my word for it and just watch one episode. That's all you need to watch, by the way. But it's, it's similar to what the douche is doing here, so. Oh, man, I I was just uh, revisiting an old issue of, uh, now back to Grant Morrison, an issue of his Doom Patrol, where uh, oh, yeah. they, were, they were telling the uh, secret origin of Flex Mentalo and uh, how he was, uh, like, he flexes to, you know, be able to make things happen. That's his right. whole thing, is that he flexes and psychically things change here. And uh, he was trying to figure out a, he was trying to recover a lost memory about something that he had seen in the Pentagon. And uh, so he's flexing, he's flexing, he's flexing, he's flexing for like months. And all he's able to do is cause uh, his neighbors to uh, come to orgasm. So, uh, <laughs> well so, done. It was like an old couple, like laying on the floor and their dog laying on the floor. So it's uh, that, that, that reminded me of, uh, of Mr. Deguchi's powers here. Um, uh, worth noting here, you know, we have a, uh, we have Pilar, you know, thinking of something very dirty to turn uh, Deguchi on. And the face he gives her when she's, you know, psychically flirting is horrifying. Oh, uh, this guy is no Brent Anderson. You're not, no. not going to get that super panel of emotion that you get in every single issue that Brent usually does. But uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Wetworks himself here can't seem to mm-hmm. generate that. I mean, Pilar's face when she finds out about, like, douchey's intentions <laughs> are, I mean, it's just strange. I mean, the girl is, whether she's into it or not, like, was Will mentally seduced her to think this way? Who knows? It's pretty messed up. But, but you know what Pilar's face looks like in a weird way? Hmm. Almost looks, do you know how, like, I, I tell you one artist that I found, find his women are extremely strange, and that's Carmine Infantino. Have you ever oh, seen Oh, no kidding. Especially, yes, especially in the 80s. Yeah, oh my God. So mm-hmm. Infantino used to draw women almost fish-like. They would have these <laughs> separated thin eyes. They would have, like, this slack jaw and, like, this pencil-thin mouth that went from one edge of their face to the other, and they look like almost fish-like creatures. I don't know how to describe it. Now, as a kid, I dug that. I mean, I, I you know, Infantino was on Star um, on Star Wars comic. He was in The Flash and all that stuff, and he did, you know, I didn't think anything weird about his uh, his work back then, but I, the other day I was going through an issue of, I think it was Dial H for Hero. 
And I think he did some work with that, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. But I mean, his, yeah. Yeah. And some of the stuff that's in that was trash. These people almost looked alien. I don't know. But anyway. They do. Uh, they do. Because, like, uh, when, because he was, you know, he was on the flesh during the whole, you know, five year long trial of the flesh epic. And, uh, for a part of that, he had this uh, lawyer who I think we were supposed to think was like this drop dead gorgeous bombshell of a woman. And uh, like she was very <laughs> high fashion. She wore funny hats. But I think that was, she was supposed to be, you know, like very, very attractive. And like you said, she looked like a fish. <laughs> Terrible. It's oh, just weird. Enough. I don't know. It's something that, you know, it's comic art. So I'm not going to I'm not going to begrudge it or nothing. But uh, it's definitely some weird stuff there. And just check out. If you're interested in weird-looking women, just check out how he draws Princess Leia in Star Wars back in the old Marvel days. It is bizarro world. <laughs> now, back to our story here. Uh, we have our team arriving in Arizona, and uh, we find out that the Horde is setting up camp in a nearby ghost town, just like the solicit Ooh. promised. Now, uh, we... Yes. Now, we also pop back to the plastics plant to find out that one of their, quote, subjects is showing some very disturbing readings on their screens. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Now we jump to the ghost town, and the moratory are confronted by the Super Horde, and they're just as gross as ever. And what do they got these? They got, like, the Ultimate Warrior boots on with, like, the large frills. <laughs> the tassel. <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was one of their trophies. That was one of their – that was a piece of flair they took. Oh, that would have um, been awesome to steal the Warrior's boots. Oh, imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Hogan's crucifix and uh, with Flair's the, robe. Maybe, maybe the Ultimate Warrior should have been like a moratory recruit with his destrucity. Oh, that would, that that would been it. <laughs> that's his secondary mutation. Um, now, to begin the battle here, um, Will Deguchi, of all people, makes himself useful here. He projects not just an emotion, but a memory, which we didn't know he could do. He projects a memory of surviving a huge, tremendous earthquake in Missouri. And this causes everybody there to believe the ground is shaking. So they all hit the ground. So totally gives the moratory the early advantage. And they all leap into action on this horde that thinks the earth is shaking. Uh, Shear, he goes to his only trick, heart cutting, heart shearing. Um, He puts his (laughs) hand on a hoardian chest and carves his heart. It doesn't work this time. It's it's ineffective. Uh, The super... The Super Hordian's heart keeps repairing itself just as quickly as he tears it in two. Poor Seth uh, Rollins. It's true. Now, uh, Foe Harold deflects powers back at the baddies, but get this, that doesn't work either. Now, Silencer tries to uh, take a page out of Shear's book by silencing the Hordian's heart. Oh, what, what the hell? <laughs> like, if, if the heart doesn't make sound, does that mean it's not beating? <laughs> How stupid. That is the dumbest thing. And uh, <laughs> believe it or not, that doesn't work either. What a effing shock. Come on. <laughs> Silence their hearts. I mean, if there is no war, do we turn the TV off? You know, is it, do, do things disappear if you shut everything down and don't hear it? No, absolutely not. This is what a ridiculous power. I may, I may change my mind down the road, but as of right now, she sucks. It's, it's not great. It's a, uh... There's like a like in child development. There's like the theory of permanence, where like if you put something under a, under a towel, like does the child think it's still there? Or do they think it disappeared? You know, and, and that's what I'm feeling with this year. It's like she made their heart stop making sound 
but did it, it i don't think she stopped it from actually beating and pumping blood you know i i this is so dumb um now brava the, the you know the the big bruiser here she punches one of the super hordians in their tentacly gut uh, only to find herself nearly being sucked into the hole she makes in it yeah this is this is a really frightening scene actually because yeah. i mean these you know they're going at the uh the horde but it's a horde that they've never seen before so they're not fighting them on the terms that they did before mm-hmm. so all of a sudden when you hit somebody and your hand disappears in and all of a sudden you're intertwined in them this adds a whole new element you know you don't even know what you're fighting Horror. here all of a sudden yeah, yeah. Terrible. Now, hard case, he flips out. He's just losing his mind here because as this whole horrendous scene plays out before him, like hundreds of cameras start floating into the picture, you know, like snapping pictures, rolling film. And he's like, crap, everybody's seeing this happen right now. And we're, you know, we're getting it handed to us. (laughs) And uh, but before, you know, anything can happen here, we jump back to the plastics plant here and uh, we find out that uh, one of their subjects is stirring and uh this is a brand new character who has undergone a more experimental version of the moratory process and when he is revealed to us he looks more or less like a melted pile of flesh um this is a moratory monster if you will who uh lets out a scream now this is one hell of a scream that causes a bolt of lightning to emit from his person that finds its way all the way into the ghost town and absolutely fries every member of the super horde. <laughs> that was weird. Right? Listen, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta tell you, this is like, if I was thinking of the way, you know, how are they going to defeat, defeat the super horde? Would it be like a pile of flesh from another? Like, I wouldn't even think of that as a resolution to this whole thing. <laughs> right. This, this was like, uh, I don't know what to do with this. Why don't we just get someone to uh, scream from a mile away and they'll send a lightning bolt and kill them. There you go. Brutal. Horrible. (laughs) Now, we wrap up our issue with our heroes wondering just what in the hell just happened. And uh, tell you what, they ain't the only ones. (laughs) (laughs) Nope, we're on board with that 100% if that was the goal. Now, next, the sleep of reason, hyphen, hyphen, breeds monsters. The next generation, colon, monster moratory. Listen, I, I think overall there's there's some good in this issue. It's not a terrible issue per se. It's not the cat's issue. No, no, it's definitely not that. But there are a lot of huge gaping wounds and holes. There's, it's just you can tell it's a filler issue, and they they sort of went off track. There's a massive tonal it's a transition. shift. Transition. Yeah. yeah. There's no mourning of Louis after his death, which really, really uh, needed to happen. The mm-hmm. breakfast scene was probably the weakest attempt at showcasing the team's powers. If this, you listen, if this had been in like three issues from now, it wouldn't have been so bad because you know at least you would have dealt with the major death, and you know mm-hmm. it would have been more acceptable. But this just looked completely out of place. It looked like it should have been issue 18 or 19, not issue 16 after the big death. So I don't know. There was a lot of stuff that. That should never have gone down in this issue, and it felt out of place and disjointed. But I think overall, if I was rating it a ten, I'd probably give it a six, six five. But uh, lots of lots of bad in this one as well. It's I would say it's the second weakest issue we've read so far. Uh, the cats one, I mean that's that's the king for the moment. Oh, that but, uh, that is the gold standard of crap. <laughs> that is the golden turd. That, but that, uh, that that is Strike Force Moratory in the Mad Dog Ward. That's what that is. <laughs> <laughs> this one is definitely uh the silver medalist here um yeah this is uh you know and and i'm gonna reflect on another book again here um 
you know what? Like you said here, there was no mourning for Louis, which sucks. It reminded me of when Havoc died at the end of X Factor, and it took like three years for his brother, uh, Cyclops, to even like mention that. Oh yeah, my brother died a while ago. It's like, yeah, that. Well, you think about it. I mean, X Men is probably the the most guilty. And oh, yeah. like every single Marvel franchise of doing this, you talk about a disjointed series. Mm-hmm. Like they were, if you read especially the like the gap between Claremont to Claremont, which of course you may have uh, you may have heard of that, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I might have. Yeah, you might have read a couple of those issues, <laughs> but that was just plagued with filling issues all over the place. Like you'd have an arc going on, lots of stories, and then you'd have like this issue that just focused on a single character, just yeah. occupy time, and it just. It just went right off the rails, but it's exactly what we see here with like different creative teams taking breaks, people dropping in, dropping out. It's just a mess sometimes. Yeah, and another thing that didn't get any follow up was Aileen. She vanished, and and like they mentioned it in like two panels. It's like, oh yeah, she's gone. Oops, she has a baby too. Well, okay, that's it. Nobody mentioned her ever again. So th- that this actually makes this issue the first issue without anybody from Gen One showing up. Yep, just to mention that's literally it. They only mention yeah. well, well they do they do mention four of them. So they don't they talk about Jade? No, they don't. They only mention two. They talk about Louie in passing, in brief, very passing. passing. Yeah, yeah, and Aileen just literally leaving, you know, just leaving the headquarters and making the run for the hills. But nobody mm-hmm. follows up. Nobody goes to chase her down, wonder where she is. This person has molecular bonding destruction powers. Like she's yep. able to melt molecular bonds, and she's on the loose. This would be a reason for concern if I was the Pidea. For sure. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, it's just, uh, you know, there's that nebulous quality that I think that we, you know, highfalutin comics analysts uh, attribute to books that we we call heart. And uh, this issue doesn't have it. This issue is procedural. This issue is it's it's a means to an end. It fills the slot on the schedule. I think that's about it. Um, (laughs) Not, you know, and it's. It's really, and I, I don't want to use like unforgivable, but it's like they really should have commemorated the passing of Louis. They really should have done something for that. For all we know, it's been so long since we've read this. Next issue could be like the Louis, you know, morning special. <laughs> but uh, I don't think a it is. A six-part limited series, The Death yes. of Louis. <laughs> That's what Electric Undertow is. It's the <laughs> Louis retrospective in in five prestige formats. But uh, yeah, this was a uh, not not not. I don't want to say bad, um, but it was a uh, definitely a step down from what we've had over the past several weeks. Um, a disappointment. I, I think that's probably definitely. a safe way to put it. But uh, that's our story. But uh, it ain't the end of the book because uh, believe it or not, this book came with a letters page. What? what? What's it called? What's the name of the the letters page? It's like strike mail or something. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> mail strike, mail strike. Mail, That's it. Which is which is pretty which is pretty timely. It's pretty yeah. cool. And yeah. uh, we're gonna just read little little bits here. We're not gonna read every letter. We're just gonna read basically the. We're gonna sum up the main theme from a few of the letters here. Now, now first, when before before we get in there, mm-hmm. why don't we remind the, remind our listeners now that this is going to be the first. Is it the? It's actually the. Is it first or second letters page we've had? This is the second or third, maybe. Second or third, yeah. Okay, second second or third letters page. Now, just take a look at how we begin our letters page. Now, if you're if you're struggling <laughs> to get letters and you want to promote this book and you really want to get the fan base off to a running start, hit them with the letter number one, Chris. Oh boy, now the, these letters are covering. 
uh, Strike Force Moratory issues like six through ten ish. Kinda, sorta. Uh, from the references they make, there is no hard and fast. This is regard- regarding this book, this issue, this month, because I I think these might have been the only letters they've gotten in the past several months. But our first one comes from Kevin, and he right off the bat says he's bored of the series routine. Oh, great! That's a way to start the letters column. That, that's a ringing endorsement. And he's like he's like this is the same story every month. I don't like it. It's boring. And then he wonders why Jaylene wasn't able to use her own analytical powers to discover a cure for the military process herself. <laughs> I mean, Kevin's got a point there. Let's be he quite does. honest. She he could does. have like she could she could have an understanding of what was actually killing her and at least tried to stop it or tell somebody, you know. <laughs> Instead, she let herself. I think basically what it was, she let herself go after the death of her friend Robert, and I actually feel that is the actual reason because mm-hmm. they did have that bond. Uh, Robert went down swinging as he always did, you know, marathon, uh, really, really, uh, you know, they had a real bond. And when she, when he died, they didn't get into it and they should have, you know, they should have made a point of, of giving a reason why she's just given up. It wasn't, you know, just lost the will to live. Yeah. Yeah. But they should have attributed it to something, you know, could have been the death of her friend and all that stuff. And she had no need to go on. I don't know. It was just weird, but that's, that's what I took from it. Yeah, but I, and I love this idea though, because this could have been a bubble and subplot where like maybe Jaylene was trying to figure out a cure, like oh I think I have an idea, but she dies before she finishes. Yeah, that would have been such a tragic thing to see happen. And if they ever go back to Jaylene's recordings, do you remember that Raylene or uh, Raylene, uh, uh, Jaylene actually <laughs> actually downloaded a whole bunch of Hordian dialogue. So yep. she took like basically all their secrets and downloaded it into her memories or downloaded into what did she download it into? It was like this vid disc or vid or like a oh, little like machine like, of some sort, right? Yeah, it was like I don't know, she brought in I don't know if it was like shells or something and they recorded that's right. Them. Yeah, that's right. And yeah, Epstia said they couldn't analyze them or something. They were too far yeah, out of their range. But they but they still have that information, so that should bubble up somewhere down the road, or that's a wasted plot point. Like, why did you kill her? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, now, our second letter comes from Bruce, and another ringing endorsement. He hates the lettering used for the Horde. Jesus. <laughs> what, what a start to this letters page. <laughs> we hate this book. It stinks. The lettering. And it's boring. My God. Man, it's, someone's got some mad hate for this book, but, you know. It's funny because the Hordian lettering actually changes from issue to issue. It seems like they they do it, and then they lighten it up a little bit so it's more legible, and then they just drop it all together. It's like uh, like some issues they don't even bother. It's really weird. The scene between Thunder Crush and the Inquirer it it comes and goes during that one scene. This issue. <laughs> That's what I mean. There are balloons that look normal from from a Hordian. It's. Weird. I think even the letterer just gave up. He's like, who cares? No one's this reading this stinks. book. Yeah. Yeah, this. <laughs> uh, our third letter comes from Chad, and his main his main you know purpose of writing is to tell us that he loves Robert and Jaylene. Well, we did too, Chad. It's mm-hmm. you know probably the best relationship in the entire series. Probably, yeah. you know, it's multi layered too. I mean, it's a are they the sort of a couple? And, you know, they're a couple in faith, or they're mm-hmm. just a couple in just colleagues. You know, who build sure. trust in each other, and they're you know they're like a brother and sister who protect one another. So it's it's probably the best relationship we've had in this entire book. And as you know, nobody screws in this book anyway. So it's that's true. that's as good as it gets. <laughs> now we'll skip the fourth letter because there's really nothing important in there. But we'll go to the fifth letter from Gary. And he wonders if the cats chapter, which we all love so so much, um, oh, might be yes. 
<laughs> might be some sort of a reference to Alf. I actually take offense to that. Alf could never be tied to that cat's issue. I loved Alf as a kid. I grew up loving it. Hey, sure. And, and, and I've already told you that I actually was. I played you were Alf. Alf. Yes, yeah. I was literally Alf. So I have investment in this. So <laughs> I love Alf. I think it's actually good. Now the cat's issue it just blows. But I'll tell you what. If Gordon Shumway was in this issue, it, it would have made it much better. <laughs> Think about it, like the horde is known for collecting all these trinkets and collections and VHS tapes and whatever, you know what I mean? It would have been awesome to see him like have like as a throwaway gag have like elf in a cage in the background somewhere. It would have been awesome. <laughs> didn't didn't one of them have an elf pin? Oh, it may have. But it would have been cool to have at least a Melmac. Actually, the living Melmacian, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it would have been Skip or Rhonda. <laughs> That's his wife, right? Or girlfriend. Yeah, his girlfriend, yep. yep. Awesome. Now, letter six comes from Duncan. And again, these are referring to old issues here. And he makes quite a uh, prescient suggestion. He says, uh, what might happen if Moritori became pregnant? <laughs> I think that Peter Gellis actually stole this from Duncan. He's like, I don't know what to write about. He's like, I don't know what to write about. Comic-Con is canceled. I've given up my will to live. <laughs> What can I write about? Hey, I know. Duncan says that, hey, what about a moratorium that became pregnant? We'll go with that. <laughs> Keep on reading, good old Duncan. You're going to get your wish, brother. Yes. Um, and we wrap this up with, uh, we like the the Make Mine Marvel little endings here. Uh, we, I don't know if we like them so much, but we like sharing them because they're, uh, they're dumb. Um, we don't get one here. We only get one sort of. Do you want to give it to them? It's, it's sure. very half-hearted. Oh, it's profound. Ready for this? Brace, listeners. Until it ends, make mind moratory. <laughs> That's lame. <laughs> Wasn't even trying. That has to be the worst mail page in the history of mail pages. <laughs> Might be. If you and are sadly, in, those are the only letters they got. If you are intent on bearing your book, these are the these are the letters letters you publish right there. Oh, it's funny. We uh, like we got some junk mail this week from a local pizza place and on it, it was like a little like plastic, very thick plastic paper sort of thing where it had like quotes from their reviews on Yelp and stuff. And uh, and like the, the first one that they had on this list was the food is decent. <laughs> That's how they All advertised right. it. The food well, check, is decent. Check this out. So in Canada, you know, what's your what's your biggest automotive? place that sells tires and different things in the, in the United States. What, what would you uh, say it is? Maybe like Firestone or Goodyear. Yeah, Firestone. Or, yeah. or Goodyear, something like that, right? So we have Canadian Tire, which is obviously Canadian Tire, you know, makes sense. But we sure. also have OK Tire. <laughs> <laughs> they're just OK, Chris. All right. Yeah come, yeah, come over here. We've got, uh, they're not the best, they're just OK. But we have them here for you. That's funny. Oh, I always Lordy. thought that was just horrible. What a horrible name for a company. <laughs> It's like mediocre tire. Come get your <laughs> partially filled tires. Yes. <laughs> Truth in uh, advertising, people. It's true. You you gotta you gotta hand it to them for that. Um, <laughs> next up, we have our bullpen bull, 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 bull bulletins page. Easy for me to say. One of our favorite portions of the uh, program here. Uh, as always, it starts with a quote of the month. You wanna you wanna hit us with that awesome quote. The quote of the month one. Uh, let me see here. The quote of the month. The very least you could have done was offer me a cup of coffee before you tried to kill me. And this was from Hawkeye in Solo <laughs> Avengers number five. What do you think of Solo Avengers? I mean, yeah. let's 
let's be quite honest. Avengers was not the burning hot property that it was, you know, in 2020. Let's be honest. Sure. Absolutely. Solo, solo Avengers. I mean, they had, they had the teams broken up. They were fragmented. They had new, new team members that didn't make sense all the time. You had your mm-hmm. Dr. Druids coming in and out. You had, you know, inhumans coming and going. Gilgamesh. It was just, yeah. Yeah, oh, Gilgamesh, the forgotten one <laughs> who I forgot all about until you just mentioned. There it you so go. <laughs> Truth and advertising. I, mean, I thought that solo Avengers was reasonably a great concept. I mean, you know, I, I like their spotlights on Hawkeye and different things like that, but it could have been super well done, but it just seemed like the stories were, at a continuity and they often conflicted what other books were doing. And sure. it was just, a, just a sign that shooters at the office because there was, you know, they were going way off the track and sort of some books were doing their own thing and didn't have a place, you know, yeah. sign of the times. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I think uh, like anytime I look at solo Avengers, it's like, I, I keep thinking that Marvel just didn't have faith in running a Hawkeye ongoing series. That's exactly it's, what it was. It's like, oh, we have, you know, the Avengers is a property. Uh, it was, you know, a little bit weak then, but uh, we'll we'll just put that name on there and it'll it'll work. I, I don't even remember who was writing the Avengers at this point. Uh, I don't know. Was, uh, yeah, because I think was Englehart still on West Coast? Maybe I, I don't know. think so. At this point, eighty-eight, possibly. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's a that that was our quote of the month, which goes to show that uh, there were not very many good quotes this month. Um, <laughs> Uh, and onto the news, we have our first item. Jack Kirby turns 70. Ah. Uh, uh, look at Marvel celebrating the life of Jack Kirby. I, you know, it makes me anxious. I wonder what they'll do for his centennial birthday. <laughs> oh, boy, Nothing. We can wait. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's funny. Listen, Jack Kirby is one of those characters, and I know sometimes that I, I crap on his current day work, but, I mean, <laughs> you gotta you got to give him credit. Kirby and Lee literally built the comic universe that we live in right now. Let's be quite honest sure. with you. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. These guys built the foundation and everything else flowed from there. I mean, Strike Force Moratory itself could have easily been a Lee Kirby book. It had mm-hmm. all the all the classic elements, you know, the humanistic elements, mm-hmm. the you know, the super team and the bombastic horde and it's got all the elements. So I think a you know a, a yeah. Yes. Oh just can you imagine Jack Kirby drawing Hordian Tech? Oh for sure. It would have sure. been it would have been amazing. Now, the, you know, the women would have looked like crap, as they normally do. But, <laughs> but it wouldn't be any worse than Will Sportacio or Mark Bagley, I'll tell That's you that. <laughs> you know, actually, a Kirby, you know, a Kirby Strike Force Moratory would have been actually interesting in this book. Anyway, at this time, you think about it, we're in 1988, okay? Kirby was persona non grata at this point, which, which surprised me that they even took a look at his life or even discussed he was 70 years old. Because, I mean, think about it. The last real big comic thing that he did in the industry was superpowers back in 86 with dc the you know the esteemed competition as far as i remember would that not be true do you remember anything in 88 with kirby in i don't know what year it was but he did that hunger dogs uh that that fourth world thing for dc i don't remember what year that was though was was fourth world 85 Um, i don't remember i don't know i thought the fourth world evades me eludes me We'll have to take a look at that after. Yeah. But anyway, either, either way, he was persona non grata. I, you know, I read some books about, you know, Marvel at the time and, you know, he was not doing a hell of a lot at this thing. And he was sort of like the butt of jokes in the Marvel office and being dismissed and like nobody, you know, they thought of his work as just being antiquated and outdated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when he finished up with, with superpowers with DC or, or, you know, with the hunger, what is it? What was Hunger he did? Dogs. Yeah. yeah. Hunger dogs for the new God stuff. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So I don't think he did a hell of a lot after that, like mainstream work until, you know, until tops came around and he started, you know, farming out some of his brands during the nineties. But, uh, you know, Stan Lee and himself were almost in the same boat, to be quite honest with you, because Stan Lee was a little bit of an outcast at this point as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the joke was that he was in Hollywood, you know, hunting Making down movies, yeah. yeah, hunting down movie deals. But really, he was, you know, not on the outs with the company, but he was to- sort of taking a step back and he was just a, sort of a ceremonial role at this point. Yeah, and Ditko, the emeritus. Yeah, the yeah. chairman emeritus. Yeah. Yes. And same with Ditko. He was sort of a casualty as well. Now, they had him doing like some speedball stuff and things of that nature, but mm-hmm. they really didn't let him touch anything canon whatsoever. So it seems like a kick in the pants to the, you know, the people who brought the creative teams where they were to this point. It's true. And, and here they are with just a throwaway line. You know, Jack Kirby turned 70. I feel like smacking someone in the face for that. <laughs> You know, what was it? I guess his hundredth birthday would have been in 2018, so a couple yes. of years ago. Yep. And I remember comparing uh, what Marvel did for it and what DC did for it, and it, it just it just really annoyed me that all Marvel did was put out some dollar comics. It's like, oh, oh here's some reprints. Um, yep. Where where DC actually commissioned new work from from creators to you know show homage to to Kirby. You know, they brought. I'm sure they did all of this stuff at a loss. I mean, they were putting out five dollar issues about Manhunter and the uh, the Newsboy <laughs> Legion and uh, and uh, with the yeah, Black I'm, Racer. I'm dead serious, and, man. Like like you cannot spit on a guy like Jack Kirby. Let's face no. it. I mean, you can talk about you you know everybody has their preference when it comes to art. Everybody sure. loves a certain style. Everybody loves a certain era. But when it comes to who literally started this whole, not started the genre, but, you know, made it mainstream and made it what it is, Jack mm-hmm. Kirby is a founding father. And, I mean, Marvel dismissing him and just outcasting him like that is one of the one of the worst parts about Marvel 80s, I guarantee you, that, that has disgusted me to a point. And, and it feels here, like, if you remember um, the, uh, the Fantastic Four anniversary issue where it had, like, just, like, a hundred characters on this cover. I think John Byrne drew it. And famously, he drew Stanley and Jack Kirby in the corner. But Jim Shooter, who was like in the middle of a lawsuit with Kirby at the time, had yes. him remove Kirby. And this like became uh, this became like the big like ah oh, Shooter's a you know Shooter's a jerk. He hates Kirby. He's not going to help Kirby's when you know failing to take into account that Kirby was suing Marvel. You know. Yes. And, uh, yes. What do you do? It's like, okay, so Kirby is staking claim to these characters here. Are we really going to draw him into a cover as a creator of all these characters? That's that, that that's evidence one. That's evidence A. It's like, well, why did you draw him in here if he doesn't own the characters? Yeah, you should have you should have avoided the whole project at all if you couldn't exactly. do it. Exactly. So it was but, very strategic from 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 a shooter standpoint to remove him from the cover just in a, at a litigation sense. And, and shooter went on record Marvel's assets. He, yeah, Jim Shooter went on record. He doesn't dislike Jack Kirby. No, not at all. Not at all. And I think he actually went out of his way to try to get him his originals back. Or Absolutely. some of his originals. Um, so this feels kind of pointed. The fact that they are bring, giving Kirby a little bit of credence here. I don't know if this is just a way to show, you know, the the every man, the every fan that it's like, okay, well, this is the DeFalco era. And uh, we're not going to dismiss Kirby the way Shooter did. <laughs> Boo, you keep your era, turkey. <laughs> <laughs> that's just I mean, that's just me talking out my ass, but that just feels like kind of it feels very the timing is very weird. Um, yeah. Our next news item, more editor editorial turnover and turmoil. Ooh. Uh, yes, we learned that assistant editor Rosemary McCormick, who this is the first time I've ever heard of her, 
she has quit comics in order to become a school teacher. Oh. Yeah. Bye, okay. Ro- bye, Rosemary. See ya. Um, <laughs> now, she was the assistant to previous profile wall star Bob Budiansky, and uh, she will be replaced by the incoming Dwayne McDuffie. There you go. Yeah. News item. Mark Gruenwald gets a little bit of mainstream attention. Now, Ooh. his... Yes, his controversial Captain America storyline is mentioned in the Washington Post magazine and is discussed on NPR's All Things Considered, uh, the radio program. And I think that that is a sure sign that absolutely nothing else was going on on the planet Earth. (laughs) There was no current situation to talk about then. Nothing. No, instead we had uh, Mark Grunewald stories. Nothing, nothing (laughs) pops a rating like Mark (laughs) Grunewald stories. I will tell you that, sir. It's like... Captain America quit quit being Captain America again. <laughs> Great. It's like the only it's the only tool in their uh, their tool belt is to take take Captain America's suit away from Captain America. Yeah, it's like uh, do, do we like the people in political power now? No. Okay, let's get Captain America out of there. Um, <laughs> our final news item is that there is no room for a mighty Marvel checklist this month. Not oh. that anybody in the bullpen seems to care in the first place. But, nope. Uh, no, no checklist for us to go through. No, uh, no massive, you know, strike force moratory blurb to uh, discuss. No, we got um, something much better. We do, we do. Uh, but first, our profile on Carl Potts. Now, what does Carl Potts do? Well, he is the editor on Alpha Flight, Power Pack, Strange Tales, Captain Justice, and Strike Force Moratory. So uh, I'm thinking he's uh, the one we blame for a lack of moratory blurb every single month. Yes, but you'd think if he was, you know, was the editor on one of these books, would would you not think that he would at least try to tout his own work? And that's that's a very interesting point because do and I I, I mean I'm using the word ownership here as as more of a prideful thing than an actual you know uh, owning thing here. Wouldn't you figure an editor would have like ownership, like not not intellectual ownership, but just like an ownership in pride in the success of their books that they would want to maybe entice a reader to maybe buy them? Imagine what a what a theory, what a thought. But it's like uh, we've been reading Strike Force Moratory now for 16 issues, and I think they had like three blurbs. And one of them was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, man, he's to blame for this. There's no, there's literally no excuse. No. Now, uh, Mr. Uh, Potts's past freelance work include writing and or penciling and or inking Last of the Dragons and Epic Illustrated, Doctor Strange number 63, Moon Knight, and the Marvel Fanfare Portfolio. Oh, my God. I mean, we're always talking about, you know, why we create content, content sometimes when, you know, there's very few people read listening or you know <laughs> nobody may listen or read well with that list of books that pot has i, I think he knows exactly how we feel because <laughs> that's some crap right there <laughs> no his current freelance work includes alien legion the strange tales number nine cover the shadow masters limited series the spellbound limited series and a spider-man story that appeared in marvel fanfare wow listen those are some seriously obscure titles, I'll totally. tell you that. I I feel that I own Shadow Masters, or some okay. of them anyway. 
I, I, I know that I definitely haven't read any of them, but I feel <laughs> that I remember that. And I think that as for Marvel fanfare, you know, the best thing about Marvel fanfare in the current mm-hmm. situation is that if I run out of toilet paper, it's, you know, as soon as uh, Spider-Man, Spider-Man in the Mad Dog world, or world uh, <laughs> comes to an end, then I still have, you know, issues of Marvel fanfare to go through as well. So I'm not out of the woods. We will be able to wipe our bottoms. <laughs> Carl's hobbies include marine aquariums, martial arts, skirmish paint games, and sleeping in awkward positions. Uh, perhaps uh, the back of a Volkswagen? I don't know. I'm I'm really worried about people who have fish. And you know mm. what I'm talking about, too. You have folks who, you know, just have that random goldfish in a bowl, you know, for the kids, and they drop a few flakes in them. But then you got these morons who spend like, literally bags of money on that rare fish that happens to die in two minutes. I just, I don't understand the people. I don't understand the hobby. You people are strange. It's true. Um, by the way, uh, skirmish. He plays skirmish games. That, that we know that better today as paintball. Yeah, so. that's pretty cool. He's actually those that. That list of hobbies outside of his uh, his fish his, fetish, uh, his fish fetish is uh, not too weird at all. Pretty good. No, no, he's a normal dude. I don't know why he sleeps in awkward positions as a hobby. I mean, I guess we all have our our things. Um, the thing that he is most proud of, he says, "Nah, man, it's too tough to call." He loves all his kids the same. Oh, uh, yeah. Would you be proud of those that list of books? Would you lay claim to any of those? Not me. Mm. <laughs> his pet peeves include unprofessional people. Uh-oh. Smokers in enclosed public places and Uh-oh. delayed flights. Uh-huh. So who do you think he might be talking about here? Who's unprofessional? One hundred percent, Big Jimmy Shooter. I guarantee you. <laughs> just think about think about Shooter. He looks like he's a smoker and a cola drinker. You know, he just got that face about him. I don't know what it is. You know, he looks like he's puffing up by the door. You know what I mean? He's standing outside the office doors. You know, just making sure that people aren't on break, yelling at him to get back to work, smacking the ladies on the ass on the way in, <laughs> making inappropriate comments. I might be off base, but I just got that vibe. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh boy now uh he he does not like people who smoke in enclosed places do you have any sort of strong feelings about that and listen ban that crap <laughs> how many messages or how many photos of, of people dying do you have to have before you stop smoking i just can't <laughs> i just can't fathom it's just dirty <laughs> it stinks it's terrible it makes people infinitely more ugly i mean seriously if you saw a person they instantly move from a potential score out of 10 if they got that smoke in their hand, it drops to a six without me even knowing them. Just, just my opinion. So listen, here's here's my advice to all the folks out there: don't smoke, kids, or get tattoos, or grow those Ayatollah type beards. You know, it's all it's all crap. Time to grow up, okay? <laughs> the only thing worse, in my opinion, is like posting these comic flipping videos and being a general ass and posting like, you know, my five dollar pickup comic posts on Twitter. That's that's, a, that's not aimed at anyone, by the way. Move on. It's funny. Um, out here, uh, they it was probably oh boy, maybe like twelve, thirteen years ago. They actually put the smoking ban on the ballot, uh, so we could vote on it. And uh, without thinking twice, I voted for it. And uh, one of my, you know, I, I don't talk about politics very much. I, I like I like things. I like to have autonomy. Is is basically my entire yes, I, stance. I agree. I don't want I don't want the government involved in what I do, basically, which isn't unique by any stretch of the imagination. And so I was talking to a buddy of mine about, uh, you know, we were talking about the election back then. And uh, and he asked me about that. And I'm like, yeah, I voted for the ban. And he's like, he's like, I thought you didn't want government involvement. I'm like, well, damn, (laughs) 
<laughs> you got Maybe me. I do. <laughs> it's and and it totally it totally changed my mind about um well it didn't change my mind. I still feel that way, but I, I it it made me feel like a hypocrite. And I had to admit that is like, wow, you know, I, I voted not for the betterment of society, even though there are health, you know, health benefits, but I voted you know, with my gut, which I, I thought I was more um even headed than that. And uh it turns out I wasn't, and I probably still am not. But uh <laughs> it definitely changed uh it made me think uh, a bit, which uh and and it shook me a little bit. So but uh I agree. I don't I don't uh I, I'm okay. Uh, like going into a restaurant and not smelling cigarettes, you Me know, too. I'm, I'm cool Me with too. that. Uh, we have places out here and I'm sure they're everywhere where even though the smoking bans have been in effect for like, you know, a decade plus you walk in there and you still smell the old smoke. It's built into the place. Like it's, it's in, in the, the fabric. Walls. It's in the seat, yeah. the walls, it's seeping out. Oh, it is man. rough. Terrible. Now our, our man, Carl Potts was born in Oakland, California. Yeah. We're not going to hold that against him, I guess. Yeah. Uh, his greatest achievement outside of comics is keeping a mated pair of Amphipryron Ocellaris alive. <laughs> and uh, that's uh, that's douche speak for clownfish, <laughs> uh, like the one in the movie. See, I'm completely right about this weirdo, Chris. I told you. <laughs> He's like, I, I know this word, and it's going to throw people off. They're going to have to Google <laughs> this in 30 years. And I did. Um <laughs> His oddest habit is taking Ralph Macchio seriously. Oh! Drop. Unbelievable. <laughs> what a guy. Uh, uh, who would play Carl Potts in a movie about his life? Robin Hood himself, Kevin Costner. Hmm, I'm actually not not bad with that. I mean, think about it. Mr. Waterworld himself, was he was huge at this time. Sure. I was a fan. I'll, I'll freely admit I was a fan of Kevin Costner. I like Robin Hood. I like Dances with Wolves. Waterworld, I even enjoyed that at the time. So, I mean, you know, he was even really good lately. I mean, you think about it. He's he's one of these one of these eternal people you see on the screen. Like, you know, he never he never goes away. I mean, most recently I've seen him in like Man of Steel, the movie. He played Jonathan yeah. Kent. He's just he got like this calm seriousness about him, and I take him serious in no matter what role he does. And I like the guy. No problem there. Very cool. Uh, why did he pick comics? Well, he loved them since he was knee high to a grasshopper. Oh, yeah. knee high mm. to a knee slapper. I don't know. Um, <laughs> people in high school thought he was an Indian. Oh, I'm not touching that one. Move on. Me either. His favorite performers, and this is quite a list, um, they include Jane Syberry, Sandy Shaw, Kirsty McCall, Sandy and the Sunsets, Naz, The Hollies, The Beatles, Colin Wilkinson, Francis Raffelli, Sonny Chiba, and Toshiro Mifune. Okay, guess what? I, I, I won't be stealing this guy's uh, collection anytime soon. <laughs> That's a lot of names he named there. And, uh, Man. You, usually when they when they list a couple people, we'll like try to find some anecdotes about them, but this is too many people. And, uh, <laughs> That's trash. Yeah, we're not going to. Don't, I don't care who Sandy and the Sunsets are. No, but I will uh, tell you something about the Beatles, though. Sure. I'm not, I'm not a Paul McCartney fan. I don't like Mr. Googly Woogly. I don't like him and his, uh, you know, everything has got to be, you know, certainly look this and googly wiggly and flipty dingle and save the whale. Shut your mouth. Get out of my face, Paul McCartney. Go give your wife another leg or something. I don't know. Oh. When WrestleMania was out here in Arizona, um, it was uh, 2010 and uh, it was held at uh, the stadium out here, the Cardinal Stadium. 
right next door to the Cardinal Stadium is the arena where the uh, Coyotes play hockey. And uh, that night that WrestleMania was on where we had, you know, 60, 70,000 people to see WrestleMania right next door, Paul McCartney was playing. So there was like no way to get to these uh, to these uh, arenas. Uh, We had to take a bus to a place where we could walk for a couple miles to get to the arena. It uh, it was uh, a pretty annoying. Yeah, listen, he's one of those guys. I mean, um, the last song that I even remotely liked from Paul McCartney was probably, I think it was from Thriller, Say, 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 with Michael Jackson. It's probably the last <laughs> song that I've ever <laughs> thought like, I enjoyed by Paul McCartney. He's just one of these guys who is just, I, I just don't want to listen to him. His music, his voice grates me. His whole political can, stance can grates me. I can Man. Feel yeah. Now, uh, the last good book that Carl Potts didn't read was... Fishes of Sri Lanka, Maldive Islands, and Mombasa by Dr. <laughs> Doctors Warren E. Burgess and Herbert R. Axelrod. So uh, he's really into fish, folks. That's what he's trying to tell you. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he actually does own this book, and it probably looks really nice on his shelf. That's about it, too. Does your wife have, like, books that she just displays? I think everybody's wife does, yeah. <laughs> I've got these books on Africa that I think I'll uh, that I'll think I'll crack open just to see if there's any <laughs> actual words in them. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny we have a uh, you know like half price books. They'll sell you um, they'll sell you books by the foot. What? Uh, where like if you want to like like on TV if you go to like the lawyer's office on TV and they have like the wall full of the you know the impressive looking tomes. Oh yeah. Uh, Half price books actually sells books by the by the yard or something like that, where you could just buy books that you're never going to read, but they look cool on your shelves. And mm. uh, yeah, so we're feeding the, the the habit here, I guess. But uh, interesting. Yeah, another book that he mentions that he read was Wild Cards, which is by various science fiction authors. And uh, I'm guessing maybe he probably did actually read that. Yeah, we'll give him that one. Yeah, this is a uh, George R. R. Martin thing, and. Uh, Never read it myself. The only thing I actually know about it was uh, I was researching for uh, an episode about uh, Neil Gaiman, and uh, I learned that he uh, offered to contribute the character that we would know better as Sandman to George R.R. R. Martin for this, you know, wild cards line of books and uh, was turned down. Whoa. Yeah. So really? There's a, there's a miss, huh? Good Lord. Yeah. Uh, now, the last good movie that Carl Potts saw was Not Superman 4. Ah, oh, Carl Potts, you can kiss my asshole <laughs> right in the middle. Listen, I'm not going to have anyone, anyone disgrace on Christopher Reeve. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Listen, I watched this movie, Superman 4, in theater. I know it's not the best, but you know what? This one means something to me. My dad brought me to this movie. We sat into in an almost empty theater for this <laughs> tragedy of a movie. But you know what? Every time someone brings up Superman 4, it's just like, you know what? Just give this one a pass, will you? <laughs> I had some of the best moments of my life here with my dad sharing popcorn and having a good time watching the screen. And, you know, the content was not important, but just the memory of it. So, Carl Potts, you can do exactly what I just told you. Right on the rim, brother. <laughs> right on the rim. <laughs> no, his biggest influences were, of course, Stanley, uh, Steve Ditko, <laughs> and Akira Kurosawa. Ah, you're not, allowed, not really allowed to mention Kirby, except for one little blur. But, you know, Ditko was still allowed to be discussed somewhat. He was still kind of lounging around the office. Was he yeah. He was busy speedballing and squirrel-girling at this point? <laughs> I think that was like a personal favor. I think he was pretty well out of the industry at that point. He had done some work with Rom, but I That's think that right. was... 
Yeah, but then they they brought him back as like a personal favor. I don't know if it was to DeFalco or who it was, but somebody brought him back and gave him that speedball thing. But I don't mm-hmm. think they had like Strike Force Moratory. They had no intention of keeping Steve Ditko around the office. And not only that, he made an ass of himself anyway. He was the type of guy who would never show up. You know, he'd come out of nowhere and drop off like a stack of like completed artwork. It didn't matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you know, both both ends were not doing doing themselves any favors, but. Uh, it's a real shame. Anyway, Steve Ditko gets a mention. That, that's that's a good thing all the time. There you go. There you go. Carl uh, Potts's greatest unfulfilled ambition is to write and draw a regular series for a sustained run. Well, the trick to that is stop getting these duds. None of these that, that he even had had a survival chance out of the gate. Come on. I mean, the only chance he had was Solo Avengers. Let's be quite mm-hmm. honest. <laughs> Now, the worst part of his job is late freelancers. Ah, any, interesting. Any guesses who he might be talking about? No idea. But mm, maybe, <laughs> maybe every single one of them since Jim Shooter left? Maybe? <laughs> that is the definitely Ding dong, the, the witch is dead, but yep. we ain't getting scripts anymore? <laughs> <laughs> You're dead on. <laughs> when nobody's looking, Carl Potts cracks his back. <laughs> I can help you with that, brother, for making fun of Christopher Reeve. <laughs> and uh, what the people ought to know about him is that he considers himself, self, 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 to be the luckiest man, man, man on the face of the <laughs> earth for being where he is. So uh, one, one thing about these questions, they're so dumb. I couldn't imagine anybody asking anybody these questions. <laughs> I couldn't. Yeah. I couldn't imagine. Like if you were like talking to like, say, nine different people, like over the course of like 10 hours. Would you ever ask them these <laughs> stupid questions? Definitely not. I mean, what never. a bad idea that would be. That, that would never a, be a that thing. Is, that is death. Uh, you know, Claremont to Claremont episode two is coming soon uh, on a different note altogether. You'd never put that in there, oh, would you? No, no, never. That is, these are silly questions. That's <laughs> Nobody's interested in this. Um, now, Mighty Marvel checklist, of course, there isn't one. But instead, we have the real origin of the Wolf Pack written by Anna Senti. Oh, yes. Do we care? <laughs> nope. No, <laughs> we don't. Um, we did actually read this, and in fairness, she actually spends a couple hundred words saying absolutely nothing. <laughs> like, what a shock. If you had to distill this into a sentence, you couldn't, because there's nothing here. <laughs> yeah. poor, poor Anne. Yeah, it's not good. Um, now, we also have a little ad at the bottom here telling us to look for the spectacular new Spider-Man balloon and the mighty, mighty Marvel Universe float in this year's Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Boy, you're really, you're, you're really reaching for content here if this is what you put in your, your, uh, your, your bullpen bulletins page. Mm-hmm. And there's a picture of Wolverine there for some reason. Yeah, with Arthur Adams Wolverine, which is yeah. amazing, by the way. Yeah, it's like, I don't think there's going to be a Wolverine float, but uh, or maybe there's going to be a dude in a Wolverine costume on that float. we gotta, we got to see if we can dig up the footage. Uh, I know there are some Thanksgiving parades on, on YouTube. We'll maybe see if we can find it. Um, but that's our bullpen bulletins, and uh, all we have left are our ads. And uh, the first one is for the TSR Marvel role-playing games. Uh, any Any memories of these? Well, I didn't actually get the Marvel ones. Now, I've mm-hmm. seen them around, and I've seen them around quite recently, actually, in different uh, different states of distress, we'll say. But here's sure. the ones that I did have. So, obviously, I had Batman the role-playing game. 
Mm-hmm. I had Robotech, the role-playing game, and I had, of course, Dungeons and & Dragons. And the only problem that I had was actually finding someone to play with me. You know what I mean? <laughs> I actually I actually managed to get a couple people to actually play uh, yeah. Batman and D&D with me a couple times. I've almost even joined a D&D society back in my university days, but of course my university came to an end and poof. Well, well, that saved me from a lot of trouble anyway, because when I looked at these bunch of rejects that were in that room anyway, <laughs> I feared for my life that one of these uh, clerics, that 10th class cleric was going to come after me and cast a spell on my ass and turn me into a frog. I don't know. Anyway, they were they were some uh, dredges of the earth, those folks were. But uh, actually finding people to play with these things were hard. And when I played Batman... I gave up right away because the person I was playing with did not have a clue about comics. They were Mm -hmm. making up these stupid storylines. And you basically got to be the dungeon master, you know, to guide your characters through a storyline, basically. That's what it is. So they give you a storyline and you guide your characters through the misadventures. So if they enter a hallway, you describe what's in the hallway and what they're encountering and all that type of stuff. And these people were deadpan. It was like, Mm -hmm. say, for example, Batman met the Joker. So they they would go, I throw my batarang at the Joker and kill him dead. You're like, no, you you can't do that. <laughs> you know, you actually have to have a battle. We have to you roll win. the dice. Yeah, game we over. have to roll the dice. You're like, well, that's stupid. I'm like, well, that's the game. Well, I don't want to play. You're like, oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> Forget it. Joker's dead. <laughs> you win. Game over. Oh, man. Great detectiving. I would sometimes grab these from the library when I saw them growing up. Yeah, um, cool. Basically, just to look at the pictures uh, and to see what they were about. I never played them. Never had, uh, you know, anybody who would want to play with me. Never really could sit still long enough to figure out how to play it. Um, but I do remember just grabbing them out of the library because they were like the only comics things that I could find uh, that weren't, you know, Garfield books. And yeah. uh, oh, Garfield books, love them, love them, love them. Oh, Garfield, yeah. Garfield at large, and all those. I lived mm-hmm. off those for my store, uh, school book orders. But oh, yeah, sure. you're right. But some of these role-playing games, they actually had a lot of knowledge or a little background on power sets, uh, oh, origins. Absolutely. And, you know, they had a lot of stuff that you would never commonly find inside the pages of a comic. You'd have to go to a Who's Who or like a Marvel Universe book to even find out some of this stuff. But they added some extra detail to characters mm-hmm. you didn't even know exist. Sometimes they just went off on their own and just created stuff. Yeah. But, uh, no, I thought they were really cool. All these books were cool. Yeah, and in recent years, I've been actually picking them up anytime I see them at a used bookstore because they're usually, like you mentioned, in in, in various forms of distress and use yes. and just way, way, way used. And uh, so, like, the, the their dog-eared the covers hanging on by a thread. So, like, they're always thrown in the boxes for, like, a buck each. So it's like, well, yeah, I'll grab that. Why not? Absolutely. It's just neat to have and uh, neat to refer to and uh, – yeah, like you said, they they will give you a, like a power set. It's the only place you could find out what Terry Long's power set is. You know, <laughs> how, much, how many hit points he had, and how many right? special abilities, and what his will was, and all this stuff. Kind of cool. crazy. Yeah, it's like you could you could get the Teen Titans uh, source book and find out Terry Long's power set. Ugh, nowhere else you could find that. Um, <laughs> Why anyone else would want it, I don't know, but it's still good true. to have. It is. It is. Uh, our next ad features the Sega Master System. Uh, so uh, did you own one of these or even know anyone who did? So I am a Nintendo kid. I was born <laughs> as a Nintendo kid. Actually, I was born as an Atari kid. Sure. But uh, after that went down, I hesitated when these new systems came out because, you know, I was still wanted to buy Atari. I didn't want to transition over to these 8-bit monsters, even though they were <laughs> 10 times better. You know what I mean? I, I went and bought the Atari 5200 just to try to stay current. But, you know, <laughs> I, got, I got overwhelmed. Anyway, I did not have 
the Sega Master System. Mm-hmm. I actually had a Nintendo, just a basic Nintendo. Sure. Uh, but I knew my friend. So my friend, who I mentioned before, his name was Kaiman, who was published in the uh, the Archie in comics Arch- and all. Yeah. yeah. He's the guy whose mother paid for everything, and of course, they bought him the Sega instead of the Nintendo. <laughs> to me, okay. to me and my friends, the Sega was always that system that your parents got you when you couldn't afford the Nintendo, right? <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was not cool club in my area to have a Sega, you know what I mean? You were like the outcast. Hey, you want to come over and play some Nintendo? I only have a Sega. Oh, man. <laughs> that sucks. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. Do you need money for your family? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I was biased for no reason at all because, man, it was definitely comparable. Uh, Actually, better in certain ways, to be quite honest with you. In a lot of ways, yeah. Yeah, but it didn't really grow an identity as a publisher in regards to mainstream popularity until Genesis. So Genesis really became Nintendo's competitor, you know what I mean? Nintendo had its core characters. They had, you know, the Mario, the Luigi, the Lynx, Mega Man, Simon Belmont, and all that stuff. Sega just had games. Yeah. You know what I mean? Were, they were more arcadey. Um, yeah. I mean, they had, they had like Alex Kidd. Um, yep. They had Wonder Boy, who was, you know, who they used as like a – well, they used the whole like level system for Adventure Island on the Nintendo. It's a yes. real, you know, weird, weird story. But uh, – I, I had a guy down the block, a buddy of mine named Albert, who had uh, the Sega. And uh, at the time, I believe I only had the Atari 2600. I didn't even have the Nintendo yet. And uh, he invited me over to play it. And the one thing that really stuck out to me, and this is this just tells you that I was like a weirdo even back in the day, uh, was the fact that they came, the games came in these like plastic clamshells, you know? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, they looked really cool on a bookshelf. Um, where, you know, if you had the Atari, what you had was a box of cartridges. If you had a Nintendo, what you had was a box full of cartridges. But if you had the Sega Master System, you had something that looked so cool on a bookshelf. Man, they did. They did. They had the basic, they almost had like a, like a white case and it had like a, like a computer grid. grid. Yeah, yep. like a grid, blue grid background in the background. And then he would have, so if it was like, for example, Outrun, for example, it would have like the car driving into the sunset. You know what I mean? Oh, but yeah. they were always cool. They did. They looked great for display. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the front covers looked ridiculous. I mean, there's a wrestling game where like the guy, it's oh. like a headless <laughs> man giving a headlock to himself. <laughs> Oh, some of, some of them you question the artists and you oh know. totally yeah what drugs they were on or, or if they were only paid like in in pennies or pesos or something it's it's really bad but uh but I love the way they looked on the shelves and that's what always stuck out to me and but uh, think about think about this when when Nintendo launched they didn't go out of their way to do a lot of like detailed art in their covers so they presented the pixel characters on yes. some of their core items you like know what i mean core, core dozen yeah. games yeah yeah i mean think about like pro wrestling the cover of that they had pixelated wrestlers on there mm-hmm. like mario was pixelated all these things were pixelated it wasn't until like legend of zelda came out and they had like the gold case with the shield yep. and all the different things but the original games were very basic they had the name on there like kung fu they would just have a pixelated oh, character yeah yeah you know what i mean really basic so when you saw the sega games and they're in these white clamshells with like detailed cover art man you're like man i'm missing out here i feel yeah Yeah. but i didn't want to admit it at the time because i had my (laughs) nintendo okay you could keep your welfare sega sir despite (laughs) it being better in certain ways (laughs) yeah and i never actually owned a master system even to today i have like because you know you go to you go to old record stores or bookstores or used places or thrift stores and 
like there'll be like Sega games complete in the clamshell, sometimes with the wrap, like the plastic still on them for like oh, yeah. you know, three for a dollar. It's like, okay, I have no use for this. I'll never play it because I don't have the system to play it on, but I can't leave that behind. You know, so, <laughs> I agree. Like they're vintage now, like they're yeah. just a piece of history and you got to have it for sure. For sure. Any, uh, any other like Sega memories in general? So the first game I ever played for Sega, which is funny because it's also the first game I ever played for Nintendo. So the first time I ever played Nintendo was actually in a Woolco in Canada in Ontario. So it was on display and I played NES Pro Wrestling. And the first time I ever played Sega was at my friend's house and he had the Pro Wrestling game for Sega. So that was the first time I ever played it. And it was pretty fun. You know, two of us could play against each other. And there was, you know, just to be able to play wrestling that didn't look like too you know, square Blocks. boxes with, yeah. yeah, like, like, do you remember Atari boxing? Do you ever oh, remember that? Oh boy. With like the big crane arms. Yeah. Yes. From so like, basically, it was like a top view down, right? Yes. Picture a square with a head that had an extended arm with like a square on the end and you hit each other. Yep. It was extremely basic. So, I mean, you know, a lot of these games were basic, but it was a lot of fun because you could do different things. You could go to the top rope, you can go to the outside yeah. You had movement, and for the first time, that was so fascinating. I loved it. And a lot of the games that I played, I don't know what you thought, but, you know, pro wrestling, you had OutRun, which was basically, you know, their answer to Rad Racer. You had Space Harrier, and there were all lots of fun games, but they also had a light gun with it, you know what I mean? And it always seemed, now, (laughs) quote me if I'm wrong, but it always seemed to work better than... Nintendo Safari or Nintendo's version with Duck Hunt. Mm. So they had uh, Safari Hunt. They had like Gangster Town. Both of these games were really, really fun, man. But they mm-hmm. seemed to be more interactive, like easier to use. They were more in tune with the screen for some reason. I may be wrong. People might laugh at me and say, you know, it was complete garbage. But that's how I felt as a kid. And when you're talking about games, Fantasy Star, if you ever okay. played Fantasy Star, oh, my God. So everyone talks about The Legend of Zelda and how, you know, unbelievable that was and how definitive it was back in the day for NES. Fantasy Star was like an anime RPG for Sega, but it was amazing. And it had like, you know, cutscenes with anime graphics and it was, Mm -hmm. it was just, just unbelievable. So with those games, I I always felt in the back of my mind and though I'd never admit it, I always felt, man, I'm really missing out on this master system. Yeah. Fantasy Star. Um, I liked the, uh, the second through the fourth, the first one always, um, because the dungeons are first person in that. Yes, that's correct. And oh man, you you had to draw a map. You couldn't oh, get through oh, it. Oh yeah. Oh no no no. Without no. it, um, I tried playing it when they re-released it, like on the Game Boy Advance, uh, probably <laughs> like 2002, 2003. And oh man, I, I got to the first dungeon, walked around for a bit, and I was like, nope, done. Yep, Can't I'm done. Do yep. It. But back in the day, you didn't have anything to compare it against. It's you true. Know what I mean, it's true. I compared and, it and against. And it looked by, great. Yeah. Yeah, I had yeah. I had Indiana Jones for uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark for Atari, which was basically oh, a blob on boy. a screen running around in like and squares. Falling in the holes and oh, oh just man. trash. So then God you get Fantasy sh- Star with like anime cutscenes and different sure. things. And you're like, what is this? Amazing. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Absolutely gorgeous here. And, and uh, think, of, think about Sega. So when they moved on, they actually transitioned probably better than Nintendo, to be quite honest with you, because I still feel that despite how really, really good and how much we love the Super Nintendo, I think the Genesis was actually better. It was a, hmm. it was a, it was a game changer, man. Like, Genesis debuted Sonic. I yep. mean, it, that was game changer. I remember seeing that on the screen for the first time. And like, oh, it was wild. 
oh, it was just so good and it was so fast. It just felt more, you know what I mean? Even though I didn't ever bought that at the time, I ended up getting a Genesis later on down the line. But I always felt in the back of my mind, oh my God, am I missing out here? And, you know, <laughs> some people, it wasn't a shame to put your head down and said you had a Sega with the Genesis. No, you know what not I mean? with the Genesis. And it's funny because uh, when I graduated from elementary school in sixth grade, uh, I was offered, you know, we'll give, we'll buy you a Genesis now, or you can wait until Christmas for the Super Nintendo because it wasn't out yet. Yeah, yeah. Being an impatient little idiot, I said <laughs> I want the Genesis right now, uh, and uh, and it came with Altered Beast, which uh, oh, I love that, which was a port of the arcade game that I beat in about a half hour, <laughs> and then I sat because I beat my only Genesis game. Oh. Um, and uh, that was it. <laughs> wow. A few months later, my friends were getting their uh, the Super Nintendo with Super Mario World. And uh, Ooh, how good was that? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And uh, I'm sitting there with my altered beast that I beat <laughs> every day. And it didn't matter. And uh, <laughs> I do remember the first commercial I saw for Sonic the Hedgehog. And I went to uh, the local video store to rent it. And uh, it was Mr. Video on Montauk highway or montauk avenue whatever the hell they called it montauk highway i think it was and uh the person behind the counter goes to the back and asks if they had cosmic the hedgehog that i was looking for cosmic the hedgehog and and of course they brand name at that point no no and they and they did not have it it was already rented out um but uh yeah i I did eventually get sonic and i eventually got a super nintendo and never looked at my genesis again but uh because that, that's where all i mean the rpgs were all there and oh yeah god yes but think about it you talk about the deluge of genesis games that you can get i mean there is a staggering amount of genesis oh, games that you can buy yeah and a lot of them are like you know third party connected a lot of the, a lot of what super nintendo did was a lot of you know in-house stuff that they had you know what i mean they didn't really go outside so when you consider sports games and different things like that mm-hmm. genesis had the adult market but there was when yeah. you're serving when you're servicing kids who are our age obviously super nintendo was not to be touched let's be clear oh yeah Right? Even like uh, like their Mortal Kombat version had the blood on the Genesis. Oh my god, they had these like gray, uh, gray gelatinous blobs that would come out yep. of the characters. There was Sweat. no blood. I loved it. I was so good at that game, or I felt I was. <laughs> <laughs> now what about uh, what about the uh, some of the follow-ups to uh, the Genesis here? The uh, the Saturn, the Dreamcast. Uh, how'd oh, you feel man. about those? So. The Dreamcast. So Saturn, I played the Saturn and I played Virtua Fighter. Uh, now, okay. I never ever bothered to buy any of the follow-ups at all. I never had no desire to. But the Saturn Virtua Fighter, I could not believe it. But it seemed mm-hmm. to just be, seemed that they just walked away from it really early. They like did. it, yeah. They gave up on it. They aborted it. Like uh, It was more expensive in my hometown to buy one, and it just seemed to just peter off. Like It had a very small section in the showcases when you go into stores, and like you could tell right away that it was inferior. You know? Or yeah. mar- market-wise, it was inferior, I mean. Well, yeah, because like the Dreamcast was like a like a, 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 a was competition to the PlayStation 2, which yeah, good luck. You weren't that. gonna touch that. No. no, 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 no. But the thing with the Dreamcast is, and I remember this vividly because I was a loss prevention officer with a large retailer, mm-hmm. and uh, all of a sudden there was a spike in Dreamcast sales. Now they had dropped the console price like way, way, way down. So you know it was it was officially affordable. You could buy one at literally dirt cheap. Yeah. But why people were buying those? Because you could pirate it. 
you could pirate games onto a CD, put it yep. in, and it would work. You didn't have to tinker. Like, you could play pirated games on the original PlayStation, but, man, sure. you had to do some work. You, you had to, to have the, the hoops. hoops. Yeah. You had to have the lid popped up and, you know, spin it a certain way, take a disc out, put another one in. Put it was upside like a, down. On its yeah, head, it was yeah. A, it was like a lot of crazy stuff you had to do to get it to work. But this thing, you just literally downloaded a game, put it to a disc, it. pop it in yeah. your machine, and it worked. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny. I, you know, I don't have a whole lot of appreciation for a lot of like the, the main like Sega lines, like, you know, Golden Axe and Streets of Rage. Oh. Like they're fun to play occasionally. But uh, for some reason, for the PlayStation 2, 3, and 4, I've bought the Sega Genesis collections over and over and over again. Don't go. have a whole lot of interest in playing any of them, but I need to have them for some reason. I, I don't <laughs> exactly know why. And it's just uh, memories, man, memories. Yes, uh, like it's like it's like every time I get psyched to play Kid Chameleon, and then I play five seconds of Kid Chameleon and go, "Wow, this sucks." But then you're and, good, though. You're good. Like, <laughs> you get it out of your system. Yep. <laughs> and the last like Sega thing I think I did, I I bought uh, Shenmue One and Two. Oh wow! Uh, and uh, I remember playing Shenmue back in the day, and thinking it was like novel but boring and uh and so i bought it again in high definition thinking oh you know i'm gonna i'm gonna play it this time i'm gonna, I'm gonna beat the game i'm gonna get through it and it's a uh, it's still boring <laughs> oh man that's too bad and you know what i tell you what a lot of the nintendo games hold water a lot better than the sega ones too because i can i can play the nintendo classic and the super nintendo classic and i can spend two or three hours in front of the screen before mm-hmm. i bail you know what i mean it's just a lot of nostalgia but then i'm good for another Two or three months, you know what I mean? Yeah, Before you get it it. System. Yeah, it's fun. Because yeah, uh, on the on the Switch, if you uh, if you sign up for the online program, oh, on the Nintendo so Switch, good, so you good. You get the the classics and stuff. That's a lot of fun. If only they supported it a little bit better. I, I'd like to get some some you know more frequent updates. But what do you want to do? Uh, we have another ad, one for the new universe. It's like Whoa. trying to bring the new universe back to relevance here. Uh, it looks not unlike our uh, Mutant Registration Act uh, ad from a few weeks ago where, you know, it's like, it's 1987. Do you know what your kid is? This one is a uh, it's a picture of four characters saying one of these paranormals is going to kill a million people. And uh, those paranormals include Starbrand, DP7, Force, and Justice. A.K.A. the only titles not canceled at that time. That's true. <laughs> Where's yeah, this Mark is, Hazard this, merch? <laughs> this is exactly right. The um, It's a complete ripoff of the other ad. No, no ifs, ands, or buts like, about it. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's not inspired. It's exactly the same. Now, the artwork is really odd. Everybody's face looks really different and gumpy. Like, the jaw lines on these people are weird and their eyes are strange. Who, who drew this? You know, the star brand almost looks like a uh, Ramita Jr. Ah, there you go. Sure. That's an explanation for you. Yeah. But and you know I what? It looks like Justice. It says it looks like it says Bog in the cor- bottom corner of his little panel oh, there. It might be John, John Bogdanov. Yeah. Uh, no, you know what? I bet you that's exactly. No, that's Bogdanov who drew that whole thing. Guarantee oh, it. Okay. I'm not a fan of. That's where the square jaws and all that stuff come gotcha. in. A- AKA Superman, which. I, I could – anyway, I don't want to talk about John Bogdanov. It makes me upset as a person. <laughs> anyway, at least I'll give him one thing. Uh, it's very strange to see this because this is a shooter property, but this is about as much uh, emphasis as they're ever going to put on a new universe for, in the foreseeable That's future. Yeah. This right here, yep. They're going to do a one-shot called The Pit. They'll mm-hmm. follow it up with The War, and then this thing is rudding off to its grave. Dunsky, yeah. 
And our final ad features Marvel pins. Ah. So it's these little enamel pins here, and they're $6 each. Jeez, this is scandalous. I mean, holy ding dong. <laughs> think about this. I, the only thing that I think about think about when I think about this is that they're the only people, pinners are the only people that are like one step crazier than the fish people or bronies. <laughs> <laughs> or who? Or the bronies. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, they're weirdos. Anyway, I don't mean to discriminate, but, you know, I will. <laughs> you people are weirdos. And no, I'm not going to trade my pin to you, so get away from me because I'm going to call the cops, all right? <laughs> there you go. You know who I think cut this ad out and sent in for all these pins? <laughs> uh, probably that one kid who was giving out the licorice on Degrassi Junior High. Oh, yes. <laughs> the kid who got beat up by his dad and brought the licorice <laughs> into school. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Hilarious. <laughs> But I, I think uh, I think we've uh, covered this book as well as uh, we could, and uh, sure. we uh, we will uh, I think we'll call it a day right here. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to uh, say or plug or or all that good stuff? No, but I'm feeling like having a profile on myself, like the Carl Potts one. I don't know. I'm I'm really digging these questions. I uh, I think if, I, I think I might like that to happen. You got any idea how we can make that happen? If, if you can find someone dumb enough to ask you those questions. <laughs> More power to you. Um, I'm I'm gonna search the interwebs to see if someone <laughs> can actually do my profile, okay? And I'll let you know exactly who I find. Oh, good, good, good. Yes, I think I think we'll probably know like the first week of May if there was an idiot dumb enough to ask people those questions over and over yeah. again. I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking yeah, that's a good time frame to get those questions asked. I believe you're yeah. right. I think so. But anyway, no, all I got is number one, thank you for listening. Everybody out there, stay safe. And you can find me if you want to have a chat or just discuss anything we've talked about here on Moratory Mondays. Hit me up on the Twitter at Charlton underscore hero. And you can also find me here on on this particular podcast. And sometimes if wrestling ever come back over (laughs) on the W2M network with the Podsman. But uh, who knows? We got money in the bank coming up where everybody has to uh, climb Climb to to the the top top of of the building. building. Yep, yep. To, uh, <laughs> to get something. <laughs> I don't know what that may be, but uh, by the looks of it, it's a it's a uh, guaranteed contract that says you're not fired. But you know, I digress. Hopefully, <laughs> yes. No but anyway, promises. that's that's it for me, Mr. Sheehan. What you got? Oh, you know, I'm 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 all the places I usually am. Uh, over at Chris's on Infinite Earth, still doing it every day. Uh, also, ChrisandReggie.com, 90sXmen.com. Find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. There's also the 90s X Men Twitter, which uh, I think I've used twice. Um, <laughs> I'm just not very good at uh, social media. I apologize. I I need a uh, I need an intern or a uh, or just someone to slap me upside the head so I'm better at it. Um, but yeah, you can find me at all those places if you want to check in. And uh, that's probably all we got for you this week. We'll let you go on with the rest of your day. We thank you so, so much for joining us. And uh, we will talk to you again real soon. See ya! See ya!